everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy B. Mench, your host, welcoming you to episode 175, which in comic book terms is kind of an anniversary number. 175 usually leads to kind of a double-size issue or something like that, and that's the case with this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Not only is it episode 175, so it's kind of anniversary that way, it is also the 10th anniversary of Doctor Who Panel to Panel as a podcast. I've been doing this for 10 years now. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years. It seems like it was just not that long ago that I started doing this. I've had the pleasure of chatting with many uh, comic book creators and writers and editors and artists and everybody along the way. I hope the, the vast majority of you have listened to all the episodes and have been here since the beginning. And I want to take a quick moment to thank you for downloading this episode and all the other episodes of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Like I have said, kind of from the beginning, this uh, podcast of mine is a labor of love, and I really enjoy doing it. So thank you for putting up with me for 10 years, and I hope you have gotten a lot of enjoyment and information about Doctor Who Comics out of it. So not only is it two anniversaries there, but we have a third one as well in that the brand new issue of Doctor Who magazine came out, which is issue 600. So Doctor Who magazine has been around for a long, long time. 600 issues is amazing. There's hardly any comic books out there that have a number as high as 600. So I think that's very uh, spectacular on Doctor Who magazine's part to be around that long, you know, making it through the wilderness years. And not being canceled uh, is no no easy feat that they uh, uh, achieved and accomplished. So congratulations, Doctor Who Magazine. And that kind of leads into what you'll be hearing on this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is a long bumper episode. So we're going to start off like we always do by checking out the news and seeing what is new in the world of Doctor Who Comics. And then we're going to go into a review, which in this case will be the uh, latest part of the comic strip from Doctor Who Magazine, number 600, which is part two of Mancopolis. And then we have lots of interviews. Uh, we will start out with an interview with Jason Quinn, who is the current editor of Doctor Who Magazine. It's been quite a few years since I chatted with Jason, and he took time out of his schedule to chat with me about how he got the gig of being the new editor of Doctor Who Magazine, what it's like being the editor, what it's like working with uh, Russell T. Davies and the BBC and way of uh, getting access to actors and sets and everything for Doctor Who. And I think you'll really enjoy this, this interview. Then I have an interview with storyboard artist and comic book artist Mike Collins. Mike is somebody I haven't chatted with for a while, but he's been busy. He's been working on Doctor Who. He worked on uh, one of the specials. He also has been working on some of the new season, new this, the new series one. So I, I chat with him about what it's like to be a storyboard artist. And I learned a lot of stuff I didn't even think about when it comes to storyboarding. And I think you'll learn quite a bit of stuff too from this interview with Mike Collins. And then to finish up the podcast, a month ago uh, here in Minneapolis, there was our annual Doctor Who convention, which is called Console Room, and they had a comic book panel, which I uh, asked quite a few questions at, and I recorded the panel, and I uh, got the okay from the Console Room uh, crew, as well as the guest of the panel, to publish or release the audio version of this uh, wonderful panel on the panel was a, a local artist. He does comic book work. He does uh, 
wrestling design stuff, packaging uh, gear and stuff. His name is Dave Wheeler. But then also on the panel was the artist of the Third Doctor miniseries and the Seventh Doctor miniseries from Titan Comics, Christopher Jones. He is also most recently known in Doctor Who circles for the Once Upon a Time Lord graphic novel with uh, writer Dan Slott. And then they had, via the interwebs, Jody Hauser uh, appeared to answer questions. And Jody is somebody who I've wanted to ask questions about uh, her run on Doctor Who comics because she's been writing them for quite a few years. So this was an opportunity to kind of pick her brain about Doctor Who and about her work with Titan Comics. And although the quality of the audio isn't uh, as great as it normally is when I do one-on-one interviews, I think you'll be able to to hear it just fine, and you'll be able to get a lot of information out of there. So it was great to be able to talk and ask questions of uh, Christopher Jones and Dave Wheeler and Jody Hauser on that. So uh, it's been about a month or so since we've had a new episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, but this time around you're going to have plenty of stuff to listen to, so I hope you really enjoy it. I hope you also uh, reach out and uh, tell me what you think about the new episode. You can find me on Facebook under Jeremy B. Ment or the Facebook page for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. You can find me on uh, the, if you want past uh, episodes of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, you can go to archive.org. Do a search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel or Jeremy B. Ment. You can find all previous episodes there. And then you can also go to my website where I have a brand new comic strip every Monday and Thursday. Thanks to Richard Morris, uh, his fan strip, The Ten Doctors, every Monday and Thursday. There's a new part uh, on there. And uh, you can find other Doctor Who comic-related stuff if you go to DoctorWhoComics.com. So, with this long introduction out of the way, let's jump into the news. In the world of Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, we're going to start out like we normally do, by taking a look at the calendar to see what is coming out or what has come out. We're going to take a look at the month of February. There's not a lot on my calendar. The only thing I see is on uh, Thursday, February 1st, Doctor Who magazine celebrated its 600th issue. I consider that an anniversary. I think everybody else does. This is a big bumper issue. Uh, Make sure you pick it up. If you normally don't read Doctor Who magazine, uh, I hardly encourage that you do pick this one up just because there's a lot of really neat stuff in it. In my opinion, you can never go wrong with an anniversary issue. I know that I'm going or have uh, posted pictures of past anniversary issues on my Facebook page. And uh, it's just neat to celebrate something as momentous as a magazine that's been around for 600 issues. By far, Doctor Who magazine has a record for uh, a genre magazine or a a movie TV magazine for such a longevity. And kudos to Doctor Who magazine for making it through 600 issues. I know when I was collecting Doctor Who magazine back in the 90s during the wilderness years, there was always that chance that this was going to be a final issue. It's amazing that it made it through all those years with no no brand new TV show to carry it through and I think that just goes to show the power of Doctor Who the power of the fans to keep the the magazine going and uh, we are now 600 issues in congratulations Doctor Who magazine and all those involved both past and present to to make such a momentous feat outside of that I don't have a lot of uh, new releases we're waiting for a new comic book day in uh, May or free comic book day to get the free Doctor Who comic from Titan Comics 
and give us a kind of an idea of what they're going to do with the 15th Doctor. But other than that, the only other thing I have on my calendar is it's February, which means that Gallifrey One, the big Doctor Who convention in California, will be happening. It is on uh, Friday through Sunday, February 16th through 18th, leading up to President's Day here in the United States. They always have a, a big comic presence for those of you who are interested in Doctor Who comics. Uh, Christopher Jones uh, will be there, I'm sure. Jody Hauser is going to be there. Uh, the the guys from Vorp Vorp Magazine and Cutaway Comics will be in the dealer's room uh, getting you interested in the books that they're putting out. I'm sure there's more guests that I'm totally blanking on right now, and I don't have the list in front of me. So, uh, But if you're going to the Gallifrey One Convention, please make sure you support all these people and tell them how much you've enjoyed their Doctor Who comics. Make sure you let them know that you uh, appreciate what they do, what they've created, and if you're kind of new to Doctor Who comics and maybe not or maybe haven't checked out like Vorp Vorp magazine for example or cut any of the offshoot comics from Cutaway Comics make sure you hit up their table and make sure that you uh, give them some of your hard-earned dollars take home some of their books I'm sure they really appreciate it outside of that it's been rather quiet on the Doctor Who comic front like I said so that's kind of it for the news on to our review It's time to open the Pandorica on a new Doctor Who comic strip. This time around, we are taking a look at Mancopolis Part 2. This is in the brand new issue of Doctor Who magazine, issue number 600. This is a story written by Alan Barnes, with art by Lee Sullivan, coloring by James O'Freddy, lettering by Roger Langridge, and editor of Marcus Hearn. This continues on from where we left off last time, where we are taking a look at Mancopolis as a city. Um, in the year 2424. It's a big uh, mecca of a city that's encased in a wall to protect the people. Um, everybody kind of comes and goes to work. Apparently they make uh, futuristic spacesuits there. And the Doctor and uh, Ruby Sunday are kind of exploring or kind of figuring out what's going on there. So as we jump into this strip, they uh, are encountering some of the citizens who look kind of menacing wearing uh, face masks. But then they meet Mayor Mulberry, who appears on the side of a skyscraper, uh, talking about the two of them and wanting them to be brought to her because she thinks that they're um, kind of uh, ambassadors from another place. So they get brought to City Hall, and along the way they kind of learn about Mancopolis. I'm not going to go into too much detail there. You can read it for yourself in this new issue. Um, but they do get to Mayor, Mayor Mulberry's office, and that's when she kind of says that, oh, there was a an assault ship that was able to sneak in past the weather field. And as that's coming in, it gets destroyed and falls on the people down below, which she doesn't seem to care for all that much. And as she talks to the Doctor and Ruby, she tells them to, you know, the Doctor and Ruby asked for chairs. And that's when Mayor Mulberry says, well, you don't really need chairs, just change into your regular form. So that's where they can't really bluff because they're humanoid form. But then Mayor Mulberry turns into her regular form, which is a, a big white moth. And since she realizes that the Doctor and Ruby Sunday are not who she thinks that they are, she is ready to do something with them. And that's when they decide to escape into the elevator, which what we learned from last time is the elevator is not exactly what it seems. And that's where our cliffhanger is for this issue. This part of the, the story, or this issue, um, this part of the strip part two, I really enjoyed. It moved the story along very well. 
that explained a lot about uh, the city of, of Mancopolis and kind of gave you a, an overview of what they do there. And it was a nice way of getting that exposition out of the way without just having one person kind of explaining the whole soliloquy thing. We actually had a little bit of a, a journey along the way. Um, when we got to the end, I thought it was a great cliffhanger for this strip, uh, a great way to can, want you to know or want you to uh, be excited about what's going to happen next. The artwork by Lee Sullivan was good, just as always it always is. So it was a very well done strip. I really enjoyed it. It fit in nicely with issue 600 of Doctor Who magazine. So I give it two thumbs up. I also want to throw in that there was another strip uh, in this. Uh, well, a couple other strips, actually, in Doctor Who Magazine issue number 600. I want to give a special shout-out to Lou Stringer and his Daft Dimension strip, which was funny, made me laugh out loud once again. He always seems to do that with his uh, comic strip, which is at the beginning of Doctor Who Magazine. But then I also want to mention the co- the special comic strip that the they did about the creation of the cover of... Uh, uh, Doctor Who magazine issue number 600 with all the Doctor Who magazines. They did a strip where the all the Doctor Who magazines have disappeared and they're starting to lose their memory. All the creators like Jason Quinn and uh, Richard Atkinson and uh, even past uh, editors and stuff of Doctor Who magazine are starting to forget that Doctor Who magazine even existed. So they have to go on a journey to try to track down all the missing issues of Doctor Who magazine. I thought this was really cool. I thought it was really neat, a lot of fun, and it was a good way to celebrate the comic strip in Doctor Who magazine, which for me is one of the important parts of what makes the magazine what it is. So an extra special two thumbs up to that very creative strip. It was great seeing uh, faces of all these current and former uh, creators of Doctor Who magazine all together in one really fun comic. So make sure you check that out as well and read through that. It was a lot of fun. Good job all the way around. Exterminate! Today on Doctor Who Panel to Panel, I have the extreme pleasure of getting back in touch with uh, somebody I chatted with years ago when he was the editor on Doctor Who Adventures magazine for Panini. He is now the new current editor of Doctor Who magazine, Jason Quinn. Jason, thank you for joining me. Hi! Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's good to speak with you again. (laughs) It's been too long. It has been quite a while. Uh, back, back, way back then, you were the editor of Doctor Who uh, Adventures magazine, the, the kind of the kids-centric uh, Doctor Who magazine. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I know you've been a, a, a long-time Doctor Who fan. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so, so I guess what have, what have you been doing in the interim in between the end of Doctor Who Adventures magazine and your lead-in to, to DWM? I was doing a lot of other things for Panini after after I killed off Doctor Who Adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing a lot of uh, other things for uh, Panini, um, a lot of their Marvel magazines, okay. uh, books there, and carrying on. But then when this came up, when the chance to do... Doctor Who magazine came up it was it was like wow yes got to do this in fact (laughs) I wanted to do it for years uh Uh oh that would be fantastic Uh, I'd love to do this and yeah because I've 
you know, some of my earliest memories, if not my earliest, uh, are of Doctor Who, um, you know, right back in in the 60s. I think I think earliest ones would either be and I'm I'm hopeless on dates, but uh, it would either be. You know, I would have been just a little kid crawling around, but I remember oh. the super mats um, being like, "Wow, look at them!" Uh, and also Jamie stumbling around the uh, mountainside uh, after the Yeti. Uh, okay. You know, so those are some of the earliest memories I have and absolutely loving it. And then, uh, you know, obviously then when Patrick Troughton left, I remember being in typical Doctor Who fan fashion where, because you know Doctor Who fans can be outspoken, they can be passionate <laughs> about the show. This isn't a new thing. It's been yeah. going No, you're kidding. You're kidding. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was outraged uh, at the thought of uh, John Pertwee taking over from Patrick Troughton, who I absolutely loved uh, at that point. He was my hero. And, and suddenly it was, what? No. What? No, he's going uh -huh. to be... Awful. And of course, he wasn't. He was fantastic and you, you know, and amazing. But mm -hmm. I was outraged at the time, and then suddenly realised, oh, actually, this is really, really cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think I've probably felt the same every time since. You know, every, yeah. every time there's a regeneration, what? No. <laughs> and then, oh, wow, yes. Yeah, I think that, I think that continues with every fan up until present day. Uh, it uh, really does. <laughs> yeah, it does. And But, yeah, you, you kind of think that it would be something that you would get into, you know, it would be later, you know, in your teens mm -hmm. But even as a little kid, you would feel just as strongly. Uh, in fact, probably articulated it better then. But, uh, yeah, you do feel just as passionate about it when, you know, as a little kid. And that's the beauty yeah. of Doctor Who is that it really is for everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it even back then... Uh, right. To, it never wrote down for the audience. It, it, it like the best fiction, like the best so-called children's books, they appeal just as much to adults, you know, rather yeah. than, you know, and I, I really think that, that, you know, it's beauty. It's all about family and it brings everyone together. It's one of those few shows where, Everyone, no matter what age, can sit around the TV and watch Doctor Who and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Now, yeah. when when you were growing up um, with Troughton and into Pertwee and stuff, when Doctor Who magazine came out, did you were you a reader of Doctor Who magazine back then? Yeah, yeah, I was. I I, I was in my teens then, uh, and. I did go, I was living, we were in Leeds at that point. And I do remember for the first issue, went with my brother, Tim, who also mm -hmm. wrote 
for Doctor Who magazine uh, yep. later on. Um, I went with him to the Marion Centre, which was like a shopping mall in uh, in Leeds, uh, and Tom okay. Baker was there. Um, he was doing a promotional uh, tour of the new Doctor Who Weekly. And so, yeah, I bought my first issue off Tom Baker. <laughs> yeah, well, that's awesome. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's neat that somebody who was a, a reader back then. I, I think a lot of the the more recent Doctor Who magazine editors have been ones who were grew up with the magazine and remember it fondly, and uh, yeah. have have become editors to the point where they got to be in charge of Doctor Who magazine to kind of bring back some of what they they fell in love with about the magazine in the first place um, absolutely yeah um and that's what we you know we we still try to do um yeah it, it's like one of the firm beliefs that i have with the magazine is i want it to Doctor Who as a as a show has always it, it it's all about change. It's changed yes. so much uh, over the years, and then you know it's it's it, it's always evolving and changing. And um, the magazine has to do the same. It, it, it changes with it. It has to reflect the tone of the show obviously mm -hmm. we've got this huge history going back and and we want to pay tribute to that as well to all the past doctors but we also want to look to the future and to the present uh, uh -huh. very much and also to reflect that the tone of of the show in the it's exciting it's fun it's um you know, it it shouldn't seem inaccessible to new people who have just come on with Shooty Gatwa. It, it it should be every bit as appealing to them as it is to people that grew up with William Hartnell as their doctor. Yeah, yeah, that that totally makes sense. Now, um, how did you actually get the the gig to be editor of Doctor Who magazine? Did it? Uh, did it just come up and you put in for it? Did they ask you if you wanted to be the editor? Um, they it, it, it they did ask. It, it was quite funny because the time before when Tom Spilsbury was leaving and I I and Doctor Who Adventures was still going then, I did put myself forward to it and I lost out. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, I, well, I, well, Mark, Marcus Hearn is stiff competition. He has plenty of experience. Oh, he definitely does. And in fact, when I first um, joined Panini, or at that point, it was still Marvel UK uh, mm -hmm. back in the nineties. Marcus was working on the magazine back then, so of yeah. course he had. Uh, also, I mean, I will confess, he's a lot more, way more knowledgeable of Doctor Who history uh, than I am. While I've watched okay. every episode, I've I've watched it all. My memory for names and places <laughs> and minutiae is terrible. It's it's 
Oh, yeah. I've got the attention span of a man, <laughs> and uh, it's it's dreadful. So yes, for, uh, you know, Marcus was uh, you know a great, uh-huh. and he he's a good friend as well. So, that, that's awesome. But then so- this time round, yeah, they did ask me. They they said, "Look, would you you know would you." Uh-huh be interested and i was let me think about it um yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely i mean who wouldn't want to be it's i i I still think i'm you know the luckiest man alive it's like when work doesn't seem like work when work is pleasure you it's it it it, it's a dream come true it's amazing Yeah. yeah Well, yeah. that, that, to answer my next question, I was wondering if you had any trepidations about, uh, you know, going into it as, as being the editor because it's such a, a long-running magazine. Uh, you know, it's the longest-running magazine based on a, a TV or media property. Um, the, the the history behind it, you know, the, 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 the editors, the predecessors of yours that have gone on before you and what they've done for their work, it's, to me, it would be kind of daunting. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely was. I was, yeah, I, I it, it was terrifying, uh, <laughs> really, in a way. And it didn't make it much easier when, you know, when people did warn me that, oh, you know, you're going to get crucified on social media. People are going <laughs> to hate you. I mean, I mean, that didn't really sell it to me. Uh, <laughs> the prospect of being hated by strangers was, oh, yeah, never, but... uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't one of the plus points. But uh-huh. uh, <laughs> then I did think, well, OK, if it's strangers hating, I, I think I can live with that. And <laughs> <laughs> So, and luckily, uh, I mean, while I'm sure there are plenty that that do curse my name and think I'm the worst thing since Hitler, um, I haven't encountered any. All I've encountered is being great support and uh, enjoyment for for what we do. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing how loyal... Uh, Doctor Who fans are and Doctor Who magazine readers are and yeah. and you know sometimes you know it, it was said to me before oh you know they don't like change but of course as I said earlier Doctor Who is all about change and mm-hmm. actually they, they, they seem to have pretty much embraced it and you know it, it they've been very 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 welcoming so it's it's been a lot of fun well that's great that's a, that's the important part is that you're having fun oh um, yeah I, 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 you know i did think uh at first I, I said oh shall i sort of play the martyr and oh it's such hard work it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, all these long hours and it's oh and the pressure and and the thing but actually it's 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 a fantastic fantastic opportunity and party and and uh i i'm loving i won't say every minute of it but uh <laughs> i'm loving most of the minutes of it well that's good um going into taking over as editor 
Um, I think you had a, a couple things going for you going into it. One, um, I think everybody who listens to this podcast and everybody who's a Doctor Who fan kind of knows how the Chris Chibnall era was very locked down uh, information-wise and how they didn't like to put out any teasers or information regarding upcoming episodes. And you can mm-hmm. see that in doc- you can see that in the magazine as well, how they, they didn't have a lot of stuff to, to promote the show with, but now that uh, just before you took over, uh, we got Russell T Davies back in, in charge and you can see with the, with Dr. Who magazine, um, a, a definite change in the magazine being a lot more informative and open and, um, the comic strip gaining prominence, uh, you know, being being a part of, of the, the show itself. Um, I think you had that going in to, as you went in as as a, a much of a benefit. It was so, I was so lucky. Uh, it was such great timing as well. And also, you know, because, yeah, Marcus and I mean they did an amazing job. Uh, but yes, things were kept very secretive, and with you know you can understand why. Yeah. Um, you know, with any TV show uh, in the past, they that you know, and so they, yeah, they would have to fill the magazine, but they wouldn't have necessarily have the information they needed for the current things or to bring the current um, news. We've been so lucky now with uh, Bad Wolf and with uh, the BBC and with Russell uh, in the, A, he's a a fan of the magazine. uh, Yeah. Or he was. (laughs) No, he he is. And he's been incredibly helpful. And I mean, you know, every month with the magazine, I mean, I think it's always a joy getting features in and articles and interviews and and all of that. But yeah, and then the comic strip as well. But I, I I think for me and we we shouldn't have favourites, but we do. Uh, it, it's always like a real. I can't wait for his showrunner letter to come in. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for this. It's all <laughs> let, let me let. Oh, what's he? What's he, he talking about this? This this time. Oh, uh-huh. fantastic! That and the comic strip, of course, because I love comics, and I think the comic strip uh, with uh, you know certainly with uh, Liberation of the Daleks, uh, which was incredible. Uh, yeah such a great run and then they've carried it off and i think that you know it's like how do you top that and i think with the current one mancopolis uh i i think it's so intriguing and so doctor who Uh so you know i love it i can't wait each um you know i'll be on to uh alan barnes when's the next uh, script coming in. Uh, I, I, you know, I want to read yeah, this. I want to read it. <laughs> uh, it's not that I want to change it or do, or do any a, anything like that. I, uh-huh. No, I, I'm just I, I'm going to see what happens. Sure, uh, uh, that, that's great. Uh, going going into taking over Doctor Who magazine, um, did did you have any 
things that like right off the bat that you said, okay, I want to do this differently or I there this or any features that you thought didn't work well that you wanted to take out and and try something different? Uh it wasn't so much that I thought features <clears throat> didn't work well or thing, but I did I sort of took on board, you know, I'd chat with uh you know, the, the BBC, I'd chat with Russell, I'd uh, mm-hmm. chat with it. And there was part of me that, that I wanted to make more of the visuals when we we, we got more. I wanted to have bigger images, which, okay. but while not necessarily having less text, which, which is a hard call you know it, that uh-huh. that's a hard one to uh, actually put on Mike Jones, our art editor and designer. Uh, I'd say, look, really want I don't want so many sort of tiny little pictures where you can't really see what's going on. Can we? You know, th- that's a good image. Can we have yeah. a big a big spread? You know, a big spread. Can we take up? But also, I still want the same amount of information in there. Can we do? Can we do that? Uh, and luckily, Mike Jones. Um, I don't think he's human. Uh, I don't think <laughs> he needs sleep uh, because he's he's there on call twenty four seven, right through the night. Um, you know, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll see I've got WhatsApps from him at like three in the morning, and yeah. he's not, uh, you know, he's not sexting me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, I've just done this. I've just finished this article. What do you think? Um, uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So it's, I, I've also, you know, I, I've. Got to say, I've been incredibly lucky with the people around me on on the magazine. Um, Mike Jones is phenomenal. Uh, he is tireless, or at least he gives the impression of being tireless. He's uh, uh, full of ideas as well. You know, I'm just the one that takes credit for them. But yeah. he has great ideas. Richard Atkinson uh, has, who's come on as the deputy editor is phenomenal as well he's great at uh checking any of the sort of mistakes i'll make and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh going through them and then coming out with some great ideas himself and he's been because i must admit i was actually really worried when peter ware who had been the deputy editor on the magazine for more years than I can count, probably since yeah. issue one. No, I mean, <laughs> it'd been there for about 15, 16, 17 years. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah a good long run. Ages and ages. And, you know, he was incredible and, like, one of the unsung heroes of Doctor Who magazine. And then he decided he was leaving uh around the time that i came on and mm-hmm. i was what no no and he he agreed to stay on for a few months for the first uh couple of months that i was there uh-huh. 
to to help and to uh you know to be my babysitter uh, yeah I mean, babysitting me, not I didn't have it <laughs> look, look, looking after babies. But, uh, he, he, he was a great help. And I was thinking, oh, God, how are we going to cope without him? Uh, and Richard, who had worked on the magazine before, uh, he, he had actually been um, designer um back when tom spilsbury was editing the magazine okay. yeah and we'd always got on well and and thought oh he actually happened to get in touch to say hope it's all going well you know if you if you ever need anyone to do anything you know let me know uh-huh. yeah. like, oh perfect he knows the magazine he uh you know, there's not going to be any moment where, you know, where I'm trying to tell him what to do and still not really knowing what I'm doing myself. Uh, uh-huh. He can step right in, uh, which he did amazingly and really well. So I'm so lucky. And, of course, Marcus has always been a great elder statesman. I say elder statesman, he's probably old, younger than me. But... <laughs> But, but as far as his, his work on DWM, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, he's been a, a massive support as well. And, you know, it's been fantastic. Well, that's great to hear. And it sounds like uh, working with uh, the BBC and, and Russell has been uh, a pleasure to, to do with, with no real problems. It, no, they've been... You know, uh, there's part of me think, oh, should I make something up to make it a bit uh, scandalous <laughs> and, and, you know, scintillating for people? Oh, Russell's such a pain. He's so, you know, he's uh-huh. so difficult. But he's not. He's been fantastic and so supportive. And so has everyone at the BBC. They, they've, you know, they've fixed up and enabled us to go for set visits <clears throat> and do set reports. And we get really unparalleled access. And yeah. just about anything we've asked for, they, they said, yeah, okay, great. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that occasionally there's issues with timing, um because you know we are time sensitive but then so are yeah. they uh yeah. so we might have to push things forward or push things back uh but they've been so so helpful uh with getting us images and pictures um debbie barry there uh, uh, um for the bbc with, with the uh all the imagery she's been incredible James Page, who helps organise and get us access to the set and to the cast, and to he's been tireless. And also, I have to say, they go above and beyond because there have been times when certain things I've asked for, they've not been able to do it. They're, they're you know, it, it, sorry, no, that we can't manage that. But rather than it just being, oh, look, sorry, no, um, they try and come up with alternative ideas. 
Oh, so, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. You know, it's not like you get a knockback and then you're like, oh, back to the drawing board. What am I going to do now? Uh-huh. We actually come up with suggestions that are possibly even better than um, what you'd thought of originally. So I can't sing their praises high enough. You know, they've they've been so welcoming and so, so you know, I think Doctor Who yeah. magazine has, not only is it the longest running uh, sci-fi mag based on a TV show ever, uh, it's, it's also got unparalleled access um, right now. Yeah. Uh, and... It's it makes my job so much easier. Yeah, by by having that wealth of of information and and access to to come up with ideas yeah. and and articles and stuff to put into the magazine. Oh, definitely, it does, and so it gives you it gives you you know we've got ideas there that we can carry forward over the next you know, six, eight, six, seven, eight months, you know. Mm -hmm. This is without even seeing a single episode of what's to come. Yeah. But, you know, from what they they give us, they were like, oh, yeah, we can put that in there. (laughs) You know, there's none of this, oh, what are we going to do? In fact, they've given us so much access, so much um, access, information so that you know we actually do have a problem sometimes with fitting it all in yeah Uh, especially like during the recent specials when they were on tv uh uh when they were airing or about to air so uh before the uh anniversary specials and the christmas special Mm -hmm. we had so much stuff but uh we were like, oh, we've only got a certain amount of pages. Yeah. Uh, uh, what can we do? Oh, we'll put that <laughs> back an issue. Put this. You know, it 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 made it it made it difficult in a great way. In the, uh, you know, we had to be really picky uh-huh. with uh, what we'd put in, uh, which was fantastic as well. Yeah, well, no, that's- it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, we we we've been so lucky, really, with the anniversary spec. You know, specials. So we had all that coverage, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then uh, we've also then we've got our six hundredth issue coming up next, which goes out next week. Uh And of course, there you think, oh my god, we've got. We've got so much we can put in there because <laughs> this is this is a, a, a chance to not only look at uh, the current era of Doctor Who itself, which of course we do, but also this is where we turn the spotlight on us as a magazine, and uh, yeah. this is a bit of uh, you know. <laughs> resting on our laurels for a for a brief moment and mm-hmm. enjoying what's what's happened <coughs> sorry yeah. excuse me. oh no problem no I, you, you read, read my mind that was that was uh 
you read my mind is that that's what I was going to lead into is that one of the, I guess one of the blessings you kind of got taking over as editor when you did was you got to do a, a few issues of DWM before the big monumental 600th issue. I so know. <laughs> you weren't going into that one going, holy crap, I'm the new editor and I have this anniversary issue to do. So, yeah. so I, I went back through and looked through my, my Dr. Who magazines. I have all the anniversary issues, you know, from 100 through 500. Yeah. And I was, I was looking to see how they kind of one up themselves each time. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, what are you going to do to, to one up the, the last anniversary issue? Wow. I, 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 I don't know if we can actually one up that one because I, I, <laughs> I, I do remember with the, the 500 one, I remember Tom and Peter and Richard. You know that they, they went through hell getting that out and all the uh, stuff with it. They, they, uh, it was oh, and it was right down to the wire, and uh, and also you know so, and and they came out with a fantastic magazine. Uh, oh yes, definitely. You know they they really did. In fact. It was one of the ones there recently that we were looking back over past issues because we needed to get every single issue together um, for this 600th special uh-huh. uh, that we're doing. Um, because, yeah, on this, uh, we thought, okay, what can we do that hasn't been done before? Um and Mike Jones, uh, the art editor, he he came up with the idea. He was like, what if we could get up to uh, Cardiff and go on set uh, into the TARDIS with every single issue? Oh, wow. Just... And the, 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 there was part of me a bit dubious about it. Part of me think this could be brilliant or it could be dreadful. Uh, anyway, th- that's what we've done. Uh, oh, wow. As you will see in a couple of days, <laughs> in, in, a, in a few days' time, you're going to see, yes, uh, every issue there. And it was, and the, the poor Mike had to chase down issues because there were about, 50 missing from our archive. Oh, really? Don't, don't know what happened to them, but, uh, yeah, there were about, and, and I think 500 might have been one of them there. And I know at the time when 500 came out, everyone was taking one from yeah. the and, uh So yeah. I'm not surprised in a way. I mean, it was such a great one, but even I don't have one now. Uh, but Mike did manage to track all of them. And we brought them all the way up to Cardiff, and then it's quite a load. It took oh, us. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> it took us a long, long time to uh, get them into the TARDIS. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so well, you you've got that to see, and we've got a few other little goodies and surprises uh coming up in that issue but uh it's it has been i i'm not we we couldn't possibly one up 
500 because it was so good. But yeah. I'm hoping this one won't be a disappointment. Um, oh, I'm 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 sure it won't be. You know, um, <laughs> it, ever ever since for for me as a as a reader of of DWM, I've been reading it since 1988, um, yeah. continuously. And I know during the during the Chibno era, I understand where he was coming from and wanting to have episodes be surprises for for the fans and for the viewers. I totally understand that, but it, but Doctor Who magazine during that time frame seemed to be rather quiet, rather kind of uh, stalled out. And I know when when we went back to Russell T. Davies taking over and having that access again, there was like a renewed energy to the magazine. Yeah. And, and like, like you said, uh, going back to the very beginning, when you talked about how whenever we get a new uh, doctor on screen, how we all kind of go, oh, I, you know, I want to keep my old doctor, but after a few episodes, you 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 start to fall in love with the new the new incarnation. The same, I think, holds true for editors of DWM. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and when when a, a new editor takes over DWM, it, there's always a, a new energy to it. And when you took over as editor of DWM, I felt a even more energy into the magazine than. Uh, what I had just talked about when we got back into the the Davies era part two. Um, oh, <laughs> thank it, you. Sure, I, I, I'm i being totally honest. You know, the, yeah. the the magazine over the past few issues has been a pleasure to read cover to cover. Um, I, I'm not somebody who reads a lot of the reviews, and yeah, uh, but but as far as like the features and the the articles. Um, both uh, about current stuff as well as kind of looking back on the past here and there, I thought it had been excellent. Um, the just the the look of the magazine, I was kind of scared when Perry Godbold left that yeah. uh, the 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 magazine might take a, a a visual shift. Me being an artist, I kind of look for things like that, and it's yeah. nice to see that the magazine has continued with the looking just as stellar as it always has been, and. I am really excited for the 600th issue. I'm sure it's going to be as magnificent as any of the the previous anniversary ones. And for, for for those people that are you know may have lapsed as a DWM reader or you know kind of take, set it off to the side, now that we're into a whole new era of the show and with Shudi Gatwa and Millie on TV coming back in May and with the specials and with kind of a, a new Doctor Who starting up, Doctor Who magazine right now is a perfect companion piece for those fans who uh, want to get back into the show again. It's each issue has been stellar, and uh, you know you're you're the head of the magazine, so uh, praise to you and your whole wow. creative team. Ah, oh, thank you. Uh, that that's really kind, and it does mean a lot. Um, you know, because we want people to be as excited about the show and the magazine as well. We 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 want the magazine to be fun and enjoy. We also want it to be welcoming, and that means appealing not only to readers who have been with it since 1989 or 1979, uh, uh -huh. but also to people who have picked it up for the first time. Uh, we want you know we want to really capture 
what's so special about Doctor Who itself? It's you know, it's it's a positive love fest. Uh, yeah, 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 and there will be something in there for everyone as well for those who mm -hmm. who love the current era or those who stopped loving it but uh only loved you know loved it up until 1986 uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be something there for you for for everyone and everyone's welcome you know that there's yeah. you know it should uh, it should be you know equally accessible for long-time scholarly fans or for those who've just seen the church on ruby road and think this is amazing wow i want to know more uh yeah. i can't wait for the next lot yep Yep. No, that's perfect. That's, you know, that's the, it's just like a comic book. Every issue is somebody's first. And I think uh, yeah. you, you and your crew are doing a great job of coming out with uh, issue after issue. That is, is great for those of us who are longtime fans, as well as uh, those fans who are, are new to the program or young and old, you know, there's something for everybody in, in Dr. Who magazine. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh and there should be, and the comic strip is great, uh, yeah. and will continue to be a very important part of it. Um, you know, it it, ju it just will. I th I think the the comic strip holds a very dear place in my heart. Um, you know, I j I just love it. Um, yeah, and it it's yet another adventure. You know, so yeah, it. it and I do think as well, I do think with Doctor Who magazine, with the comic strip, with definitely with Liberation of the Daleks and with this current one, um, it's you you could see it on the screen. You you could yeah. see it as a great episode or a great uh actually it'd be a season long episode, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be. <laughs> It would, it would definitely with liberation. It would have, it would have uh, been like the flux. But yep. <laughs> uh, hmm. no, that's that's great. Uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that the comic strip is in, in good hands. And uh, I I want to. I know you're a busy guy. I want to take. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to to chat with me. And thank for you. It's the, always the, a pleasure. And. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, enough of the uh, oh, busy, oh, so so overweight. No, I, I'm just having fun every day. It's, it, <laughs> well, that's awesome. I, I, I'm glad to hear that. It's uh, it's always I've always been told that you know, as long as you enjoy doing your job, it's not really work. Um, no, it's and, not. And, yeah, so that that's that's kind of one of the keys to life, I think. So it sounds like you're living kind of the best life ever for you, and. Uh, Jason Quinn, thank you very much for joining me for, for this uh, chat about Doctor Who magazine. And thank you, and I'll look forward to the next time. You will be deleted. Today on Doctor Who Panel to Panel, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Mike Collins to the show. Mike, thank you for joining me today. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> well, you've been a really busy guy. We've been trying to coordinate schedules to get this interview, and uh, we finally found some free time and... Uh, I guess the first thing I want to talk to you about was your involvement doing the Ninth Doctor backup 
story in the Once Upon a Time Lord uh, graphic novel that uh, Titan Comics came out with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was a, a, an utter joy to work on that one, Dan. Uh, yeah, how did, how did you get involved on that? I, I well, Dan Slott is a huge Doctor Who fan, and um, you know it's it's primarily a, a tenth Doctor and Martha story. But they your story kind of dovetails in rather nicely in that it it, it kind of involves or is kind of a side story. So how did you get involved doing that? Well, I mean, it goes back to my very first meeting with Dan. Uh, it was at a London Comics Convention a few years back, and I, I, I'm trying to work out which year it is. It's probably. 16, 17, something like that, okay. came down to me and um, said, um, you're storyboarding Doctor Who. And I went, uh, you're Dan Slott. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we just sort of uh, instantly clicked. And um, we sort of talked off and on because my favorite Marvel character is Spider-Man. And, and Dan uh-huh. has been one of the, the greatest writers on Spider-Man. I mean, ever. I mean, yeah. he, he, yeah. he's, uh, I mean, not just the, quality but the quantity of stuff he's done on spider-man he's just extraordinary mm-hmm. yep um, totally agree funny if my very first uh, uk comics job was writing and drawing spider-man for marvel uk mm-hmm. um and spider-man has always been my favorite hero when i was a kid i was a, i was the, the the kid in specs that got picked on and, oh okay uh, I, I didn't have spider powers my uh my super uh, abilities at that time and they sort of carry on since it's the fact that i could draw likenesses um yeah and so I defeated the bullies at school because they wanted pictures of uh, Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris because at the time they were big kung fu films. And uh-huh. so I would draw, I would draw pictures for the bullies and they wouldn't beat me up. So yep, yep, there you <laughs> so go. Peter, yeah, Peter Parker was always my hero. Uh, uh-huh. so, I mean, uh, and, and me and Dan had been chatting for years about maybe doing some stuff. At one point, I was going to do a Spider-Man annual. Oh, really? With him, but the, the timing didn't work out on that, uh, which is, you know, fine, and maybe someday it'll happen. But uh-huh. he got in touch with me a little while back and said, okay, we can't do Spider-Man, you know, in my little arena, but how about we do Doctor Who? <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, Titan had offered him uh, the, the chance to do some Doctor Who stuff, and his Marvel contract had been negotiated so he could do Doctor Who stuff, mm-hmm. which is great. And... um he said, you know, I've got this big story that's at the front of the book, but I've got another story at the back that I'd like you to do because you were the ninth Doctor artist. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously, you know, when the TV show came back, that's when I sort of became of whatever prominence there is in Doctor Who. Exactly. You were you were the guy to do the, the yeah. Christopher Eccleston stuff. That's right. So I was the ninth Doctor artist. Um, so that's basically how it happened. Um, okay. And... Uh, I've got to say, the script on that story is so good because it only works in comics. Yeah. It wouldn't work on screen in any way at all. It wouldn't work as an audio. But it's a Doctor Who story that works as a comic book story only. And I think it's so damn clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, yeah so, that's w- well, well, go ahead. I said, that's how that came about. Okay. Uh, so so what was it like going back to drawing the Ninth Doctor after uh, kind of being away from it for a while? It meant I had to go back through all my archives. Uh, <laughs> so much paper in my studio. Um, and I found my old folders of my Chris Reckleston, um like sheet sheets that I'd done. Oh, okay. And screen grabs. And I went back and rewatched the whole season. <laughs> 
and appreciated it all over again just how clever Russell was for that season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, basically, I was being paid to rewatch Doctor Who episodes, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, and it, it it was interesting because there were certain things that we had at the time when I was drawing uh, Christopher Eccleston where there was a certain amount of tension and obviously by the time I was drawing him he'd pretty much already left the show um, yeah. though we didn't realise that outside um, and he was very exacting on what he wanted his likeness to be Um. And it isn't actually how he looks; it's how he sees himself looking, which is an interesting thing. Hmm. Um, and uh, the the problem I'd had, uh, and I hadn't appreciated it then, was I'd sort of come off drawing Star Trek and Babylon Five for American comics. Yeah, and Star Trek and Babylon Five, the actors certainly actors have um, you know uh, likeness rights, and they'll sign off on stuff. Um, but quite often, you've got the agent in the middle, and the agent. Fedus, it's their job, wants their actor to look as good as they can. So mm-hmm. you sometimes get artwork turned down because the actor isn't pretty enough. Um, <laughs> the problem with dealing directly with Chris Treckleston was he didn't think we were drawing him ugly enough. <laughs> oh, really? It was the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. So it was like, okay, I've got to get my head around. I'm back in Britain now. This is what happened in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite interesting coming back to draw him again. So I went back to what I'd, what I'd drawn previously and sort of saw, oh, well, that worked, that didn't work. That's mm-hmm. what he wanted, but that's how I see him. And I sort of found, um, hopefully I found like a, a nice sort of medium ground between how Chris always wanted himself to be, to appear, and, and uh, how he worked as a comic book character. So, Because it, it's very much a thing that um, when I'm drawing a comic book version of a TV show, it's got to work as a comic. Um, yeah, I really dislike any comics on TV shows where the focus is trace photographs. I mean, hands up, I trace photographs, but I will adjust them so they fit with my storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. I will lay out the story first, and then I'll find photo reference that's close to my layouts. Yeah, uh, some of the, the the least successful books are the ones where they just trace down screen grabs. There's there's no continuity. There's no storytelling. And that's mm-hmm. what you want. Quite often, there's no emotion. If you really want to get across the emotion, you want to get across that thing that in comics, there's a certain amount of pantomime to the way that the actors move on the on the on the uh, on the page because you know, they're not moving. You know, on screen, yeah. you your characters move around, but you've got to make it appear when you're drawing comics that the characters are actually moving on that page. You've got to get a certain amount of animation. I mean, a digression. Matt Smith was the best doctor to draw. Because he oh, was I'm a cartoon. <laughs> uh-huh. he, he, just in real life, he's he's a, a real life cartoon. Just as the, his his mannerisms and body language. He was so great to draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I never really thought about it uh, before. Uh, you know, of all the the artists and stuff that I've interviewed and talked to about trying to capture a, a, a person's likeness and and having a look like them but also you want it to fit the the comic book feel i never really thought about the when a when an actor looks at their likeness on the page you, you don't necessarily have to get the okay that they're saying yes this looks like me but you also have to wh- how they would visualize themselves being drawn if they think that looks like what they think that they look like uh, yeah. that's kind of two different things what they look like in real life and what 
they visualize themselves to appear as. Yeah, well, I, funny enough, on uh, Star Trek, I, so I did Star Trek Marvel and DC and, um, mm-hmm. and Wildstorm, which is DC adjacent. Yep. Um, and I, a couple of American artists said to me, oh, avoid doing Next Generation because Patrick Stewart is really, really strict on the way he looks on the page. So, you know, he, he will go through it and he'll just go, that's not me, that's not me. Yeah. As, as it happened, I, I haven't done anything on Patrick Stewart because I've done um, some other various licenses. Of video. I did the um, Captain Pike stories and what have you from Marvel. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, when Wildstorm had the license, uh, there was a Next Generation Deep Space Nine crossover comic and Andrew Curry that had drawn the first two issues um, mm-hmm. and fallen behind and had sort of said, look, I can't finish this. Can you get somebody else to do the last two books? And uh, David Roach had been inking the books, sort of got in touch with me and said, look, you know, I'm going to put your name forward as a pencil. You're okay with that? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I'm okay with it. I completely forgot the Patrick Stewart thing. Uh-huh. Um, sent my pages in. Not a whisper. Oh, really? Not a problem at all. And I thought, oh, and afterwards, I thought about, oh, hang on, this is this is where I should have had all these problems because the book was running late. Uh-huh. Um, it was even later because Patrick Stewart was going to do all sorts of fixes on it. And I realized afterwards what it was was that because um, Patrick Stewart is an actor that we've known in Britain since like the, the 70s. You know, way before Star Trek. And, yeah, um, yeah. So I know from I Claudius and various other things. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, I already had like the, the Patrick Stewart head. I knew how to draw Patrick Stewart. And what it was was that what Patrick was complaining about was funnily enough quite similar to what Christopher Eccleston was complaining about is that uh, quite a lot of American artists would square his jaw and round his head. And apparently most of his notes were, I look like an egg, draw me like an egg. <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought, oh, Patrick Stewart looks like this, I dream, and it was all fine. So there we go. Uh-huh. I, I I already got the egg bit. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you got the egg bit down. <laughs> so so uh, when you did this this uh, backup story for for Titan, did you uh, have any sort of issues with or notes regarding Chris Recklestin's likeness? Did they have to go through that all uh, again like they did, uh, you know, back with uh, Doctor Who magazine? No, no, that wasn't an issue at all this time around. I don't think Christopher sort of takes that closer a look at this sort of stuff now. Um, yeah, as I say, I probably at the time, part of the issue was that you know things were quite tense, and you know whatever. <laughs> I I don't know the ins and outs. Uh-huh. So that, I mean, you think about it, it was a tense time because this was a TV show that hadn't been on the air for so many years. And, yeah, you know, there, there was a a lot was invested in this relaunch. So everything was being looked over by fine, like, like you know, fine tooth comb on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so we're quite comfortable with that stuff, so it's good. Oh, that's so, good. No, no, I, had, I had no feedback at all on that. I just had a ball drawing him and drawing Billy Piper again. That was great. That's awesome. I, I think everybody that worked on that book had a, had a really good time, you know, from Dan Slatt's story, just uh, him throwing everything in the kitchen sink in and what uh, Christopher Jones and uh, Matthew Dow Smith were able to to do in that book and your backup story, just like it's it's a fun story from cover to cover. It was, and wasn't it clever the way that they they split the stuff on the first story between um, Christopher's stuff and Matthew's stuff? I thought that worked mm-hmm. so well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it worked out perfectly doing that kind of uh, the the book endings with the 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 stories that Martha's telling in a different art style. I thought it worked perfect. You know, it was perfect. Yeah, I, I found that one brilliantly. Um, and I'm pleased with the whole package. I thought it was kind of great. Of course, you have Charlie coloring me again for the first time in ages, so that was great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, 
So, so yeah, has that, uh, what did your appetite any for doing more comic book stuff? I, we're going to get into talking about your, your current gig, but I, I was trying to think of what other comic stuff you've done recently. And if this is, Got you going. Oh, maybe I should, you know, dip my toe back in the comics uh, somewhere. Well, I've, I've done. You know, I, I kind of haven't stopped drawing comics the whole time I've been working. I oh, really? Done many comics. Um, okay. You know, it, it's that thing where I'll do like an odd Judge Dread here or there, or um, something I can fit in my, my schedule. And mm-hmm. one of the things about storyboarding is that uh, it, it gets a bit feast and famine. So you you can have a show where you're working on it for. Like say two months, so, so like Good Omens and Good Omens Two. I was working on them for like months. Um, quite often on something like Doctor Who or that recent uh, Harlan Coben thing. Call uh, me once. I'll have blocks mm-hmm. of work, and you know, and I'm three or four days dead solid on that, and then I've got a gap of a couple of days, and then you know, again, three or four days solid on stuff, and so uh, I fit the comic stuff in amongst that. So I'm all I'm. As much as I can, I'm always working. <laughs> well, that's good. Doing something. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah, you like we're jumping into now the storyboarding stuff. You've been doing storyboarding for quite some time, off and on. And uh, right now, um, I believe you're working on the new series of Doctor Who, or the uh, not the one that's going to be coming up, but the next one. Uh, yeah, um, I, I think I'm probably already saying Doctor Magazine, but yeah, I'm storyboarding episodes for the 2025 season. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so uh, we've got a head on, uh, that, which is great. Well, that's awesome. Uh, do you do you do that from your studio and send stuff in, or do you get to go to Bad Wolf Studios and have a, a desk there where you get to draw stuff and can kind of change things on the fly as needed? It varies. Um, on his dark materials. I worked in house, so I had a desk actually at Bad Wolf then. Um, okay, but on Doctor Who, for the most part, I work at home or work work, work in my studio rather. Uh-huh. These days now, um, but you know, all during lockdown, it was all working at home. But I've now got a studio again, so I'm really happy that I get to go out and uh, <laughs> leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, for the most part, now I, I work um, in my own space and send the work in and then um, I'll have meetings with the directors. Usually there's like an initial meeting where we go through the script and say, Oh, this looks like a scene that needs boarding. These are going to okay. try and let's look at this. This might get rewritten. So don't touch that for a little bit. And I will then board sequences, send them in and then have generally two or three more meetings with the directors where we sort of go over the boards I've done or look at the next set of boards to be done um, and make corrections or add stuff. Um, if I can, I get to visit the set. Uh, okay, and then that—that's great. Get, getting the actual set is uh, getting to be on the set is a is a a really useful thing for me because mm-hmm. it means I can plan things out in my head. I I know you know you walk five steps this way, you're at a wall. You walk five steps that way, you bump into the camera. So okay, yeah, <laughs> you know that that's great. Uh-huh. Uh, Figuring out the logistics of of the the set and yeah. where things will be. On, on series one of uh, um, Shooty's series, series one of Shooty's, of, of Shooty's Doctor Who, um, I got mm-hmm. to visit the artist set, but I was not allowed to photograph it. Now, normally I'm allowed to photograph sets because I'm storyboarding. They said they're, no, we, we, they're being so strict about any pictures getting out. They said you can go and visit it, like stare intently, and then run back upstairs. <laughs> and sketch <up> and <laughs> and sketch something out. <laughs> 
They didn't even let you bring your bring like a drawing board into the the set and just draw while you're there. There's me, the director and security. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got got to wander. I I didn't actually get to go up the platform because that is really high up. I mean, it it looks big on it looks big on TV, but my God, it's huge! It is literally like a cathedral. Wow. Um, and I, 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 I know if I'd stepped down to that gantry, I'd have, I'd have got a vertigo attack because it's so high up. Uh, uh-huh. But no, so I, I could see from below how it all works. So when I've been boarding the show, I've got my mental image of how it looks and my quick sketches I did as soon as I got back to the office. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so for the most part, getting back to your question, for the most part, I worked in my studio. Okay. Um, all the way through as well. Sure. So it was changing notes. <sighs> yeah, I, I was wondering for storyboarding, I, I'm sure most people think that it's probably like action sequences and stuff where they want you to storyboard, where they want to plan things out. But there, is there any other times uh, besides that where storyboarding kind of comes into play? Where, would it be, you know, like maybe a, a quieter moment, just he- kind of helping figure out camera angles or, or things like that where storyboarding might come into play? You know what? That's actually the majority of stuff. Oh, really? Work, working out how the characters are interacting on, on a set. Um, a lot of the stuff that's done with VFX, that tends to be pre-vis these days because there's a lot of visual effects working on stuff. Um, on the Star Beast, I boarded some sequences where it was, um, well, the doctor in the back of the taxi cab. <laughs> okay. You know, so sort of working out how the characters interact in those scenes or the that whole opening sequence in uh, the market where you see the, spaceship fly overhead and you uh-huh. have that whole thing to mind with moving the boxes in front of um catherine tate so i boarded all that okay but all the sort of big spaceships and stuff like that that was done by um painting practice who are the the, the vfx people there mm-hmm. because obviously they've they've got to take what they're doing and make that work for you know yeah for the special later on so um i mean that being said i also did some um storyboards for them as well where you had people interacting with the Meep initially, so it could show how that looked on an emotional level. Um, but it is, uh, and I, I, I was almost told you something about episode one then, and I'm glad I didn't. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the really good anecdote you can ask me about in a year's time. <laughs> All right, I'll remember that. A year yeah, from now, um, I'll be asking you about the whole series one. Okay, well, I only did <laughs> series one, but, uh, but they're good. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it's... It tends to be the, the, the emotional stuff. Um, a certain amount of the actors acting, you want to set things up that make that work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and see, I find it interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm sure most of the listeners and stuff, when it comes to when you think of storyboarding for a TV show, you don't think of, you know, establishing camera angles or how storyboarding would help in that. You're thinking all the, the chase scenes that we see or action sequences, the, the storyboarding is being used to help coordinate how things are going to look and timing issues and things like that. And uh, I, I'm, like I said, I'm sure a lot of people don't think about stuff like the, the doctor in, in the back of the cab or being on the, the market street. Isn't you would, th- I would think personally that would be something more for the director and the, the cameraman or the camera people to figure out those angles. It's interesting because i um, both those scenes I've talked about both took place in real locations rather than on set. So, mm-hmm. uh, what you needed to get done in those particular circumstances 
is you needed to have the shots all worked out before they went and visited the location. They knew okay. what they were doing before they got there. So sure. They might have varied what I, I drew in, and, and that usually is what happens, because it might be on the day, oh, this doesn't work, but we could do this instead. But mm-hmm. because you've actually got a visual reference for how it should kind of look, that's a really good starting point for when you set the cameras up. And watch. Okay. Yeah, so it's, so it's kind of kind of giving a leg up to the the camera people and the directors saying, all right, here's what we want it to look instead of having to spend all that time at the location figuring out where they want to set things. I'm his money. <laughs> yeah. I'm cheap. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I mean, going back to the Capaldi uh, series that I worked on, I mean, I worked, worked on all the Capaldi series. I think one specific example was uh, the woman who lived the uh, okay. episode with Rufus Hound, and there was all the sort of high women stuff going on in that one. There's uh-huh. a whole series of explosions towards the end of that episode when you know the the alien, uh, uh, what you call it, portal, where it was opened and things are getting blown up. Uh, I had to sit down with Ad, Ad Basiljet, who was the director, and um, we sort of worked out where all the actors were going to be at certain points because. You know, Danny Hargreaves was going to blow up this bit here and this bit here and this bit here. So we had to make yeah. sure that the actors weren't anywhere near that. <laughs> yeah. So that when they turned up to film those sequences, they already knew where, you know, um, you know, Maisie's going to be here, uh, Peter's going to be there, and this is going to happen over there. Um, and that, you know, that that sped things up, I think. Mm-hmm. That helped them with uh, that, that sort of thing. Because that, that's sure. what my job is. My, my job is not to uh, make um, a little comic strip of the entire episode. My job is to create graphics that work to help the director and the camera crews and the special effects people on the day. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm doing what's technically an invisible art. You really shouldn't see my artwork. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, it's for other people to use that as a starting point <laughs> for what they do. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm 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 happy with that. I think that works. I mean, I can't remember if the last time I was on, I told you about the time I got called into the production office. Or not? Mm, I don't. I don't recall. I don't think so. Okay. So um, the um, Dan O'Hara two-parter that directed uh, two-parter, which was set in the undersea base. If you remember, okay. the Doctor and Clara in this underwater yeah. base, and everything starts going wrong. She's got these creatures coming out the shadows. Yep. Um, in the second episode of that, I think. Or, oh, good lord! They all mixed together with me. But anyway, you've got a sequence mm-hmm. where the Doctor has to dive under a, a door as the door slams down. And I, I boarded this as part of the various things I was doing, and I got called into the production office, and they said, um, right, we've got an issue with your storyboards. And I thought, oh, this is it, I'm fired. That's it, it's all over. That's <laughs> it, all done. Uh, and I said, look, we appreciate what you've done, and we realize what the problem is. I think, hey, this is it, I'm fired. This is it, I'm gone, I'm gone. Uh-huh. And I'm okay, what's the problem? He said, the problem is you draw the comic strip. And I went, yes. I said, so some of these boards, you're drawing like the comic strip. I went, okay. I said, so in the comic, if you're drawing this as a comic episode for Doctor Magazine, you've got the Doctor diving under the door. And we've got this really clear picture of Peter Capaldi's face as he's going under the door and the door slamming down. I went, yes. I said, we can't do that to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> That can you reboard that sequence so we're behind so we can get a stuntman doing that? And Peter Stundable was actually canny. He was a really good likeness. 
so that uh-huh. we can have that angle so that that's how it's going to happen. And I said, yeah, I can borrow that. No problem. I can turn that around this afternoon. I said, all right. I said, okay, we, 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 have, a, we have a new rule for you, Michael. And I said, oh, what's that? I said, don't break Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when I do boards now, I make sure I reference, like, this is stunt. This is... <laughs> uh, <laughs> make sure you tell <laughs> who's who. <laughs> I've been doing it in the comics, you know. I would have done, like, you know, really close on his face as he's going to the door and the door's slamming down, but... Uh-huh. Can't do it on <laughs> So so when you draw storyboards, how uh freeing or how loose is it compared to like doing a, a a comic page? I know it's it's definitely not as detailed, but you know, is it more than just a few scribbles on a panel or uh does it kind of vary from circumstance to circumstance? Do you know, it varies from director to director. Um oh, yeah? I've I've worked with directors that want what I described as um, 70s Warren comics, black and white. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, wow. I'm happy to do that. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and I've worked with directors who pretty want, pretty much want little more than stick figures. Um, so I will adapt to whatever levels. I've got directors that um, will want color on the boards because oh. there's specific things in the story that need color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will do that. But it is really down to each director how much work they want done on that. Um, like I say, I'm I'm there to facilitate what the director wants. It's not down to me. You know, yeah. I, I might I might want to do pretty boards every time. <laughs> they don't need pretty boards. <laughs> uh, so it's it's on that front. It's almost like do you know being a comic book artist and having to to make sure you're doing what the the writer wants or what the editor wants. Uh, kind of you're there to to put your you know put your creative foot forward and. And do that, but at the same time, you got to kind of follow their their guidelines. Yeah, well, I'm, my job is to interpret, um, but interpret in a particular way. So uh, I've, I've worked with uh, directors who don't like certain things being done, so I don't do them that way. Um, and, I, and I would say it's it's down to the job. So um, I'm sure. happy to do whatever's needed. Um, like I can work in just very very simple doodles. I mean, I, I'd rather not. I, I really like doing the detail work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if that's what's required at the time, then I, I do it. So yeah, and, and I, I would think uh, a lot of times the the more detailed the the storyboards, the more it would help out the director and the the camera crew. You know, being able to to help them visualize things a little bit easier than just having some stick figures on a board. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, a really good example of this is actually on. Um, the very last Capaldi story where um, you have the regeneration into uh, Jody, where I okay. actually, they had, I think it was not even a full day with Jody to do the regeneration. It might have just been an afternoon. So I uh, uh, sat down with Rachel Slaley and we went through every beat of that story. And it's about, I don't know, is it, is it even 90 seconds on screen? And I did 17 pages of boards. Wow. Um, because I, I was I was always boarding every second of it. Um, the, the idea being that when Rachel and the crew turned up on that day, um, because of what we'd worked out, they knew exactly where the camera was for every single beat. So they mm-hmm. set it up 
and just you know do that, do that, do that, because it was already visualized, completely visualized all the way through. So yeah, it's um, a, a time-saving measure in in, the, in this case. Well, I, I always say this as well: is my, you know, me doing boards saves so much money for the shows later on. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've worked on shows where they've said, "Oh, we don't need to board this." I look at it and think you do need to board that, but you know. <laughs> And then they come back to me two months later and said, well, we've looked at the rushes and it doesn't work. Can you come in and board this again? <laughs> Can you come and board it? <laughs> you mean board it? Well, <laughs> no. you know, it, it's, it varies. Um, you know, some shows I'll look at a script and just think, well, they don't need me at all for this. I don't know why I've been called in. But the director then has a particular thing that uh, she or he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something I hadn't spotted at all in the script. So we will then go through it. It's been... Tell you what, the, uh, 10 years now I've been doing storyboard for TV. And it has been so useful to me as a comic guys and a comic book writer because quite often the meetings with the director and with the, 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 uh, the DOP, um, you go through uh, what is the point of this scene? What are we getting across here? What, what do we want the viewer to know at the end of the scene they didn't know at the start? And that's informed me in the way I do my comics now. Because you know, I've got this here, but what does it actually mean in this sequence? Where is uh-huh. it going? Why is it going there? And that, that whole sort of deconstruction thing, quite often in comics, you're turning on really fast, so you don't tend to get to have that sort of little moment of contemplation. And it's been a, a, a fabulous boon for me as a creator to sort of uh, to experience that, then sort of make it inform my work in other spheres. Because um, it, it quite often... I will read a script and I won't get anything off it that the director has, which is why they're the director and I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's fascinating having different approaches to work. Well, that's neat that, that uh, you, you can't beat me to the question. I was going to ask if working on storyboarding has, has influenced your comic book work. And uh, I, I, w- I would just assume so just by kind of giving you a, a different perspective on uh, – drawing things or or laying out pages and getting uh, coming up with different angles for things oh absolutely it's been um, really useful I mean there's certain things I have to unlearn when I go back to doing comics because there's uh, I always say that comics and storyboarding are um, are the same but they're the same language but a different accent <laughs> uh, <or laughs> yeah. a, different, a different grammar set so uh-huh. there's things you can do on TV or movies that you cannot do in comics and vice versa. I mean, one, one of the main ones is the fact that in comics, you can have your frames any size you like. You know, you can have a tall panel, you yeah. can have a thin panel, you can have a, yeah. a panel to circle. That TV screen, no matter how much you try, is not going to change shape. <laughs> so everything you do for TV has got to fit the, uh, basically the proscenium arch of a, a, a TV set. Uh-huh. So you have to design shots that way. So it, it's, that's, that kind of stuff is really fascinating to me how you get information across in the two different mediums. Well, you know, and also the fact that on TV as well, everything moves. In comics, nothing moves. Yep, yep. <clears throat> so in comics, you got to pick that that one shot that kind of conveys, you know, that one split second of time that conveys five, ten minutes worth. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you, you go back and look at um, John Buscema's work or Gil Kane's work, and they were the masters of that. Yeah, I can't. You cannot look at, say, a Gil Kane Green Lantern comic and not feel the movement in every panel. Everything in your head mm-hmm. as you're reading 
you're looking at a still image, but in your head, everything is moving. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic for until he throws a punch. You feel that punch from their arm being pulled back. <clears throat> so fit making contact, even though Jack has only drawn the fist having gone past the body. You feel that uh -huh. whole thing. And that's yep. what's so amazing about comics as a medium. When we get it right, God, we get it right. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's fascinating to, it's not very often I have, I get to talk uh, to somebody about doing storyboards. So, you know, for me, it's brought up uh, even more about how important storyboarding is. A lot of times I think, when you think of storyboarding, I always think of like animation stuff where you, there's, you always storyboard an entire like cartoon or like uh, Christopher Jones, for example, you know, he, he has been working on the Young Justice uh, cartoon for uh, Warner Brothers doing the storyboarding. So I'm sure that's even kind of a different uh, mindset or a different way of doing storyboards than what you do. But to, it's it, it's interesting to hear how important storyboarding is to uh, to TV shows. I I think it's phenomenally important. I mean, not, not just so I want to keep a job, but. <laughs> but um, <laughs> No, it, it really is. It's it's a sort of thing that it helps the director, it helps the crew. Um, I always say that, you know, I can sit and sketch on a couple of sheets of, um, like, copier paper, and they can go, oh, that works, we can shoot that, or, oh, that doesn't work. And mm -hmm. all it's cost them is a couple of sheets of copier paper. Whereas if they've gone off and shot the whole thing, then, you know, tens of thousands yeah. of dollars have just gone out the window. <laughs> yep. Yeah, in between the, the, the crew and the actors and and the the time spent, you know, yeah, you're saving your saving them lots of money. Oh yeah. And uh actually funny enough, one of the first directors I ever worked with uh said to me that uh said, Your job, Michael, is to show me what I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Okay, so I bought it out and you go, Oh, that isn't what I want, but I can see now I can do this. So okay, right, I get it. Uh, and I that that's always been sort of the back of my mind whenever I board stuff. These directors going, oh, okay, I see what he's gone for there. It doesn't work, but this would. So mm -hmm. I think things like that are really useful. So I, I I have a useful job that you really shouldn't see. <laughs> yep, there you go. You're, you're one of the the behind the scenes <laughs> people that that we we hear about from time to time, but uh, we're not going to see exactly what you do. But we're going to definitely appreciate it. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I and I love doing it. I absolutely adore doing it. Um, when I got to do that two part of the uh, the magician's nephew and the sorcerer's apprentice, um, the the two part yep. of the Daleks and Missy, uh -huh. uh, I, I got to play with real Daleks. I got to do drawings. <laughs> yeah, I did the drawings. Um, it was funny if I, I bumped into Stephen Moffat in the um, BBC reception. And he said, uh, is it treating you well? I went, he said, basically, he said, I said to him that um, I'm seven years old again, and you're paying me to be seven <laughs> years old. Uh -huh. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So, uh, Well, I know you got plenty of storyboarding uh, yet to go that you're working on. Do you have any uh, comic projects that, you're, that you have in the works that are going to be coming up? I've just done a doctor, uh, doctor. Good lord! I've just done a, um, a Judge Dredd story that appeared in the last uh, magazine. Oh, okay, it was a, a thrill to do because I got so used to working really small when I'm doing storyboarding that I, I went back to working on um, 
old-sized paper, I mean, huge paper, and it was just a, um, a joy in itself to draw that big again. Uh-huh. Um, so it would swing my arm around a lot more than I do when I'm storyboarding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. So that was um, – I've got um, a graphic novel that I'm working on, which has nothing to do with any superheroes or science fiction stuff at all. It's oh, really? It's of – textbook and that's all i'll say for the moment so i'm not sure if it's been announced or not okay but, um i can come back and talk to you about it later on but it's an interesting project it's a project that i'm i'm fascinated by the, and it's working out really well um hmm. and hopefully it'll be around towards the end of this year but that's that's one of the things i've always loved about doing comics is the fact that comics is a medium for telling stories in you know yeah they, they don't have to be superhero they don't have to be um Science fiction. Um, so my favourite stuff I worked on has been a, a series of uh, noir graphic novels for the Norwegian market. Um, I, I just like drawing people interacting and drawing locations and stuff. So th- this book I'm working on now, which, like I say, is a textbook, <laughs> um, hmm. is great to do uh, because I get to draw real people in real locations. And I'm, I'm enjoying doing the interactions. Um, and it's way outside of my normal... Um, arena so i'm having fun with that so I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to seeing that coming out uh, but in the meantime I, I carry on doing my storyboarding so sure that's fun so we've had a, a like i said that the things i've worked on most recently that have come out have been um the harlan corbin uh fool me once that's been on netflix i boarded that okay uh, a series for channel four over here which i'm not sure if it's made into the international market called true love which is a really, really dark comedy. Um, and I've done some kid stuff as well. There's a, I'm not sure how familiar the American market is with Amy Blyton and the famous one. She was a kid's okay. book from. I, I've heard of it. Okay. Well, they've done a, um, a series of movies for TV, and I've storyboarded all of those. And those are some of my favorite scripts for a very long time. Uh, oh, yeah. It's been. It's been how to describe it? They're, they're done with complete respect for the original material, but they also feel contemporary. Uh, okay. I love it. It's kind of like, if anything, it's like the Goonies. I think that's probably where it's closest to. It's got that okay. kind of vibe. Sure. Solving crimes and mysteries. Uh-huh. And treasure, that sort of stuff. And that was just a joy to work on. Well, that's good. Well, I'm glad to hear that there's, it sounds like there's plenty of storyboarding gigs that you've, done or i'm sure you got probably some more lined up uh coming down the road and like when like you said during your your spare time you can get some comedy work in so it's not like you're nothing but busy oh i i, I try to keep as busy as i can i mean i've, I've been not busy in the past and i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> well that sounds great well uh thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh chat with me today and uh, kind of gave me some new insight into storyboarding, lots of things I never really thought about or didn't know before. So I'm sure the listeners out there will uh, be in the same boat as me. So uh, Mike Collins, thank you for chatting with me. And uh, I'll definitely talk with you sometime later on this year about uh, this textbook graphic novel <laughs> you have coming out because you've piqued my curiosity on that one. Oh, well, there we go. It's, 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 it's an interesting piece. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, thank you for well, inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure for my side. Thank you. No problem. Thank you, Mike. Well, 
to console room 2024 and our comics panel. Please welcome to the stage Dave Wheeler and Christopher Jones. And on, Hello again. And online, Jody Hauser. Hi, Jody. Hi, Jody. I feel weird because I'm waving at a monitor. Yeah, in the last 60 seconds, I was nominated to moderate this, which I think just means I'm going to make sure we all get introduced because I don't have a plan for what's about to happen. You have a plan? No, not really. Fair. Let's go. Um, so let's let's make sure we first start by saying who we all are. I'll go last. So you go first. Oh, God. Uh, my name is Dave Wheeler. I'm a kid friendly all ages comic artist. I also work in the professional wrestling industry as a gear and merch designer, also a professional toy designer and YouTuber. So I. A man with many hats. Okay. Jody, tell the good people who you are. Uh, I'm Jody Hauser. I'm a comics writer, probably in the circle best known for writing Doctor Who, starting with the 13th Doctor. Uh, I've also worked on Star Wars, Critical Role, Stranger Things, superhero stuff. Uh, just a lot of, I write a lot of comics, and I really like Dave's hat. Aw, thank you. You are a man of many hats, and that's a very good one. This is my favorite. My name is Chris, and I also like Dave's hat. Aww. <laughs> I, I try to oh, offer you comics. I think you all know that by now. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you need your roses. I have drawn miniseries featuring the third Doctor, the seventh Doctor, and a graphic novel featuring the tenth Doctor. I have done many other comics as well. I currently live in Los Angeles working for Warner Brothers Animation. I'm from here originally. I love this con. Let's move forward. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about comics. I don't think we have a great plan here. We are all comics professionals. Um, yeah, I'll start with this. Joni, you mentioned uh, that you're uh, known for uh, having done 13th Doctor comics. I very clearly remember when you were given the interesting task of writing the first comic book appearance at Titan Comics of the 13th Doctor when we knew diddly squat about the 13th <laughs> Doctor. What was that experience like? Well, that was interesting because they did give us maybe 10 script pages total as reference that were just snippets of scenes. So it's like, oh, you could see each of the, you know, fam talking and you could see 13 talking a little bit. And like this was before I think even the longer trailer had come out. So we were kind of working just with like snippets of characters. So I've had people ask me like, how, how come Graham didn't call the doctor doctor? I was like, I literally didn't know he was gonna do that. And uh, yeah, we luckily the, that first episode dropped while we were in the lettering stage for the comic. So we were able to go and tweak the dialogue to fit the characters a little bit better. And, you know, knowing how everyone was connected to each other and what those relationships were like, we could sort of tweak along those lines. But the first draft, uh, yeah, we, we, we knew like a teeny tiny bit. So we both worked on a lot of comics based on licensed property. And it really varies, in my experience, varies a lot from project to project, how much reference you're provided with. Sometimes it's ample, and other times you're just scrounging to, uh, to inform your work with what you can find on the internet. I was gonna say, from what I'm hearing, you defined the 13th Doctor. Yes! <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, not really, but. Oh. 
um, we, I, I feel like we sort of got to do our own version, especially of the companions, because the sort of dynamic we built up in that first issue sort of continued through everything we did, I feel like. so. And I don't think it was really that different from the show, but I think it had its uh, tone that was sort of specific to those comic stories. How did, how did you get the, the Doctor Who gig originally? Well, how did that come to you? Oh, well, I, years and years ago, the first licensed comic I did, and actually the first comic series I did, was for a show called Orphan Black. And that first issue was in Loot Crate, so it is still the best-selling comic issue I've ever written because it was in Loot Crate. Uh, so that sort of put me on the map for writing licensed books in general. And at that point, I think Titan had just gotten a Doctor Who license, and some Titan editors came up to me at a convention and asked if I had any interest in writing Doctor Who. And I almost lost my mind, and I was like so nervous. I was like, they gave me their cards, and I'm like, but they have my cards. So if they really want me, they'll email me. I, I feel like it's presumptuous to email them even though they gave me their cards. So I didn't email them, and I didn't hear back, and I was like, yeah. Uh, and then years later, when I'd done a lot more comic work and was much more confident in my ability to tackle like big properties that I had a deep love for, uh, it came up when after the 13th Doctor had been announced, and I was again asked if I was interested in writing Doctor Who, and at that point I was like, yes, I'll take the job. And there was no, uh, I've gotten over my imposter syndrome just enough to accept <laughs> What's that basically. like? <laughs> I mean, it's, I haven't gotten over it, I'm sorry. <laughs> The inward, the inward is still there, but the outward is uh, like I can okay. pretend to be a little more confident, I guess. You can fake your way through it like some of us. One of us, one of us. I was gonna say, you played hard to get with Doctor Who. That's amazing. Yeah, that, yeah I, I have to say, I jumped at my first chance to do anything with Doctor Who. Yes, please. <laughs> I, I got to draw a color in the page. <laughs> someday, someday. Uh, well, you know, one thing about your uh, comic book experience, which is very different from mine, is uh, your relationship with comics and putting projects together and finding your place in projects uh, is informed by, I think you have a lot more knowledge and understanding of, of the consumer side of it because you, you've, you've worked in comic book stores a lot. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's not something I've ever dealt with. Does that, when, when you're thinking about how to something, market something, what kind of project would do well? Does, does that experience? I mean, definitely. It was also something that impacted me on, on design, like designing books and stuff like that, too. Um, I was lucky enough to work at Arkea for a bit, um, and I was one of, like, I was one of the quote-unquote interns, but I ended up laying out three books for them and, like, laying out back matter and all that stuff. So that combined with seeing what sold in, in the store um, which, quick shout out to Hot Comics and Collectibles locally. I, I work with them, I, I do their social media and stuff now. But um, working there for freaking ever, um, you know, seeing connecting covers being a thing. So my trade paperbacks have connecting covers, seeing die cuts, seeing chromium covers come through that just sat. And I'm like, oh, thank God, those things are expensive to make. Um, but it, I don't know, it created a really weird and kind of fun perspective on things. I've been lucky enough to actually bring Chris in several times for, oh, yeah. for signings over the years oh, too, and, yeah. and and oh, I mean, we've been friends for yes decade, uh, but uh, it was one of those things of bringing you in and seeing your enthusiasm for it was also something that helped inform me of. I, I mean, I'm I'm a spastic person as is as I, I see some some regulars and friends out in the audience know me too well, but um, it was one of those things of really emphasizing the point that you know you can make. 
anything what you want of it. You know, you can come in and if two people stop by, you can still be just as excited and just as happy to see those two people as you are to see a hundred. Um, and that was, sad to say, that was what happened with Chris like the first time because uh, we forgot to advertise. And <laughs> Chris had like five people. I'm the, I'm the weird guy at the table in the corner of the comic shop like waving at people as they come in for comics that day. That's kind of the dynamic that was there. Well, I think we put you in front of the new wall too. So it's like, you were kind of in the way of everybody. I'm like, yeah. what am I doing? Oh God. But uh, it got better. It got better. I, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, is part of the experience of working in comics is is doing conventions and signings and promoting your own work. And you know, it's something I didn't understand when I was starting out that it's it's not just about the skill set to create the work, whether you're a writer or an artist. Uh, it's it is promoting yourself and marketing yourself and, and talking to fans and it's it's the whole package that is kind of the skill set that you have to develop and uh, you know you, you talking about you know people coming up uh, you know I, I learned really early on that you're gonna tell the same anecdotes a lot you're gonna answer some of the same questions over and over a lot and you have to you have to do it with a certain freshness and enthusiasm every time, you can't roll your eyes about it because the person who is the 47th person to ask you that question, it's not their fault that 46 other people got to ask it first. I, they I, deserve every bit as good an answer as the first person got, or maybe the fifth person when you got better at answering it. Uh, well, and, and one of the things too is, uh, is again, I've, I've been lucky enough to know you a very long time. Jody, I actually met you a, what feels like a million years ago at this point. Um, but the thing that stood out is I know a lot of comic writers, and I know I know a lot of them very well. And it was one of those things of you were the first comic writer I ever met that didn't like the first thing was that well I'm just the writer. Like you were such a wonderful like person behind the table, and it was just like this is awesome. Like she kicks ass. Oh, I, can, I don't know if I can say. Well, that. I, think, I think I have <laughs> I have the benefit of I'm the rare creative who's also an extrovert, so I actually like talking to people. But like even I get tired, you know, like. I know this is like a fourth day at the convention for you guys, and like some days are just hard when people like are really excited to meet you, and it's maybe their only day at the show. It's like like Chris was saying, you still have to have that energy there, and you know it's like you're drawing from the deep reserves yeah. that you usually don't uh, need a, to tap. Caffeine's a wonderful thing, and and as much as our jobs, and I certainly feel like my level of celebrity is not on the same level as like the actors you'll see at a convention or something like that. One thing is part of the sameness of the experience of doing shows like this that do, seeing this side of it has made me very conscious of when I meet celebrities is, you know, you're meeting them and, and you, you may be meeting them at their best, but they might have also just had a nightmare getting their stuff through the airport and didn't sleep well in their hotel room. And you know, you, you have no idea what is going on in their life when you get that maybe like one minute of interaction with them. And it's great if they can put on game face and, and be great, but like, you know, I've talked to people and had not a great experience with them and then found out that that was absolutely an anomaly. That is not who they normally are yeah. at all. But it makes me very aware when I'm the one behind the table talking to fans. It's like, oh man, I gotta bring it. I can't. First, I can't do that to somebody. First impressions are very, very important. Yeah. Um, 
I, I did a uh, collect Doctor Who collectibles panel yesterday, and I am so sorry for the people who came in there. I had no idea what I was doing, so I was kind of going off the cuff, and it, you know, I, I, I'm a very high-energy person as is, so it kind of became a weird improv exercise of talking about toys and collectibles, and I'm like, man, I really hope I didn't scare anybody away. Is it, isn't that really what a panel is, though? Oh, Those oh. are just kind of weird improv exercises. Oh, so somewhere along the way I missed an email, so I didn't know I had the panel yesterday until um, actually uh, these two lovely people in the audience uh, informed me, and I was like, oh, whoa. <laughs> so I didn't have anything with me. I, I mean, uh, now I'm not on, on the John Davy level of making PowerPoints, but I, I did put together a presentation. That dude's really good at that, by the way. It's, it's amazing. I, uh, I, felt, I felt very unprepared, <laughs> but um, yeah. I didn't get to see his. I, had, I put one together this weekend, but he, his was probably cooler than mine. Videos. His was definitely cooler than mine. <laughs> um, he punched through a wall. I have a question for you, Jody. So, you've written a lot of different kinds of comics, some licensed things, and, and you know, all, all manner of stuff. You, you could rattle off a list much better than I could, but... Uh, sometimes, I'm sure, you write a script knowing who is going to be drawing it. Sometimes you don't. How much does having or not having that information influence any choices you might make doing the writing? I mean, I think if it's an artist I've worked with, you know, it's like I worked with Roberta for so long on Doctor Who, I knew that she enjoyed, uh, you know, coming up with new character, like alien designs. So I tried to put things like that. So if it's something I, where I've worked with the artist and I know things that they like to draw, I'll try to find a way to put that in. But I've also, my script style is kind of sparse enough that it, I don't really cater the scripting style so much to different artists. And a lot of the artists I've worked with have just told me they really like the sort of amount of detail I put in. It's like it's enough that they sort of know what's going on and what's important to the story. But it, I try to find that balance where it's like they have the information they need, but people don't feel like they're boxed in. They still feel like they are part of the storytelling team rather than like, you know, a writer going, you art monkey, you draw this. Because I, I never want to be that type of writer. Um, but yeah, I feel like I've sort of over the years come up with a good balance in terms of how much detail is in the script. And that seems to work for most of the artists I've worked with. So I just kind of stick to that if it ain't broke. Do you think visually at all about things like camera angles or how many panels uh, or how the panels are structured on a page? Or are you just thinking in terms of plot and dialogue and letting the artist figure it all out? So I tend not to dictate too much if there is, you know, it's like obviously I'll signify if it's a splash page and then if it's, if, if it's a page where one panel is bigger, I'll tag it as semi-splash, which I don't know if anyone else uses that term. It's just something I came up with. But generally, it's like I will have a picture in my head of how the page could look, but I tend to not dictate that to the artist because almost every time the artist comes up with a better version. You know, if there's something that's so specific to the story that it needs to be laid out a specific way or there needs to be a specific flow of like the visual information for the reader, it's like I'll try to include that. But again, it's like I feel like most of the time, in terms of like layouts and stuff, it's like this is what the artist knows. Like this is what they've been trained for. They're, they're going to be better at it than I am. So I try. I try to be a little more hands off there if I can. 
I was going to put it out there. Um, I, again, I've been lucky enough to work with you on a very strange side of things because I was an editor um, at a very small local company uh, that does not make comics anymore. But um, being on the editorial side of things and start at the at the start, I was going to get the chance to actually be Chris's editor, um, and that was quickly taken away by the owner, who was also the writer. But um, I was still included on all emails, so it was one of those things of like. Like you were just saying, Chris is, you know, an, an artist knows what, what they're doing and what they're capable of, and it was one of those things that I felt like they were micromanaging you to death on that one. A little bit. That's um, understatement of the decade. Um, but it was one of those things of, I just always wanted to drop a line in there, just like, just trust Chris. He knows what he's doing. And uh, I, I didn't want to get fired, so I didn't do that. <laughs> Well, uh, that came a couple months well, ago. Well, with your work, I mean, you've you've written and drawn stuff. You've done a lot of back end things in terms of inking, coloring, uh, production mm -hmm. type stuff. Um, does wearing those different hats affect your thinking and what you're planning for when you're doing the more front end parts? Yeah, when I, I mean, when I'm writing, I thankfully. Um, uh, much like Jody, I, I've been lucky enough to work with uh, one of my best buds, uh, you know, as an artist for a very long time. So it was one of those things of we kind of could finish each other's sentences when it came to that. But when I wasn't working with them, I kind of would go, okay, you know, I hate doing this as a colorist or I hate doing this as an inker. So maybe I'll avoid doing that in, in some scripts. Um, same thing with doing other collaborations of where I'm a colorist and, you know, they'll go, oh, do you want to work with this person? Um, one of the books I worked on was uh, the Telos tribute to Michael Ringo, which was a lot of people donating a lot of time to make some amazing stories. And they were kind of pulling me into like multiple, multiple ones, and they're like, "Do you think you can color this artist?" I'm like, mm -mm. Like, there, there was two of, two of those were like, "Oh no, 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 no!" There are like 27 clap, you know, crowd scenes in three pages. Like, I'm doomed. But you know, other ones I had, I had worked with uh, artists before, so it was you know pretty easy to jump in, jump in, and like go to town on them. But having had history coloring other people's work, yeah, does that make you think differently when you're doing your own line art, thinking about, you know, how much do I make specific choices about lighting and, and shading and, and, and things like that, and the line art that kind of locks in, like, well, then it has to be colored this way versus, you know, here's, here's just line art of kind of the shapes, and you can do whatever you want with it. Well, a lot of the time, especially with scripts and stuff, I'll, I'll say stuff like a dimly lit room and, you know, or a very bright room. I usually include like the light, the general lighting situation. So it's not like, oh, you're in a cave or, you know, it's like, no, 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 you're on a stage, you know, and you have, you're, you're lit by incredibly bright lights. Uh, type <laughs> things are, it's like, oh, and let's go towards them. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, one, it's one of those weird things of, you know, having worked in different different realms, yeah, it, 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 that was a really long way of saying yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just gonna, it's my bad. This is this is why I write or I draw. It's all good. It's all good. Um, you know, like I said, I, we uh, I we had not like rigidly planned a panel presentation here, so we keep asking each other questions. If anybody out there, as we go, has questions. 
please put a hand up and we will call on you and, and include uh, okay. your question in the conversation. I was going to say, since we are also on, on the YouTubes, yes. um, we do have a microphone dead center of the room, um, too. If you do have a question, just come on up and ask, uh, too, because then everybody can hear it. Um, that's an excellent point. That, that yeah, that's an excellent point. Otherwise, everybody... Yeah, so that's a little point. have someone moving to that microphone now. <laughs> Hello, uh, Jody, I've been dying to ask you questions for a while because I do a podcast about Dr. Lucanis. Um, one of the ones I wanted to ask you is, you were the 13th Doctor writer for Titan, and towards the end of their 13th Doctor run, they did a pairing with the 13th Doctor and the 10th Doctor, which was really, really good, the tale of two Time Lords. And then the story that went after that was another 13th Doctor and 10th Doctor story that kind of fed into one into the other where the sea devil started taking over. And my question was, how did those stories come into being? Well, I guess how the first story came into being, pairing up the 13th and the 10th Doctor, was that your idea? Was a Titan going to you and wanting to do that? And then why was there a, a follow-up that had the same pairing going on? Uh, well, I think the, I remember the uh, crossover came from Titans, and I think uh, some of the specifics of the second story, also the fact that it was the Sea Devils and that it tied into the Tesla episode, those came from Titan. I think the for the first one, I think I was the one that pitched that it happened uh, when Ten and Martha had been uh, linked away by the Weeping Angels, because I wanted to sort of tie into what happened that we didn't get to see on on screen. But uh, and there were a couple times, especially like that second one, like I was saying, it's like, well, we haven't seen Sea Devils in a while, so we'd love to have them show up at the comics, and we want to tie it into the Tesla episode. Uh, here, 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 is some, here are some ingredients to make a stew. Uh, and I actually, I, I find those really fun stories to do because it is a little bit of a challenge when you have a number of elements that seem like they might not necessarily fit together. And the thing I liked about that story was at the end, I realized there was a leftover Rose Tyler, which, uh, because of the way I had set up the specifics of the paradox, and it was, that ended up feeding into the next uh, crossover that we did with 8 and 11, because I wanted to tell the story of that uh, extra Rose Tyler leftover to uh, be a revolutionary for worlds where she was needed. So, um, yeah, it was a mix of both. Some of it came from me, some of it came from Titan, and then some of what we came up with then fed into later stories. I know one of the things I love about drawing comics is I find myself presented with challenges by a script that I have to solve drawing problems that never would occur to me to play with uh, if I was just sitting around going, what do I feel like drawing today? I would think, I would think as a writer, getting prompts like that. It's like you, you have to use all these elements kind of has that same vibe as far as like, well, it never would have occurred to me to try to combine all these in a story. That's what they're asking you to do. So we have another question. Yeah, exactly. As writers and artists, uh, how much of a challenge is it for you to be writing stories about a property that's been ex in existence for 60 years? And how much, as, as a follow-up question, how much do you hope that your stories will end up on the television screen? Uh, well, you're the, one, you're the one that's written Doctor Who. You tackle that first. Um, I honestly, in terms of, 
because I've written a lot of different licensed properties and some are newer than others. And really the longer a property has been around, that just means there's more reference material to go back into. So, you know, there's so many iterations of the doctor you can go back and look at if you, you know, if you're doing a crossover and you need to reference voice. It's like there's there's so many hours you can go back and watch if you want to. And there, of course, is the issue, uh, especially for a time traveler, where you want to make sure you're not uh, tiptoeing into areas where other stories have gone. And that's where it's really helpful to have editorial who's more familiar with the property in some iterations than you might be. Um, but really, honestly, the more reference you have, the better. Uh, in terms of appearing on screen, I think um, I think we just had our very first comic story that appeared in Doctor Who. So uh, I don't know if that's going to be setting precedent, but it was very, very cool to see. So, yeah. I've only colored on things yeah, that have yeah. that long the legacy, but oh, I suppose I, I did some educational graphic novels. Um, and getting to work on stuff like the moon landing and the first ascent of Everest and stuff was was interesting because we were able to put some some faces and whatnot to just what would normally be kind of a footnote in a book, which was kind of neat. But that that's about the extent of it. Yeah, I mean, as a big Doctor Who fan, I certainly got a kick out of drawing the Doctor Who stories I've drawn uh, with the the recent graphic novel I did with Dan Slott. Uh, the new monsters that we had in that, the pyromaths. Um, I, I am so happy with how their design came out. I would love to see them in live action. I don't know that that's ever likely to happen. Um, but anytime I've gotten to work on an existing property, you know, superhero stuff, I've been lucky enough to do. Um, there is a real, it's not just fun, there's like a deep satisfaction that comes from working on something connected to anything you loved as a child that you feel like you're getting to give back to it somehow there's a sense of like a, a, a the completion of a cycle it's it's always hard to wrap my brain around the idea it's like comics i create feel like my comics they don't feel as real to me somehow as comics i went and got in a store when i was a young reader and knowing that there are readers out there that for them my stuff is as substantial and makes big impressions on them as much as the stuff I consumed. It, it's, it's hard to wrap my head around sometimes, but it's definitely one of the fun parts of the job. When I was going to say, I, I, so I do a lot more things on the independent comic scene. Um, so like I self-publish uh, through Mindwave Comics and it's always a surreal thing of, A, feeling really, really old when I see someone come up and go, did you know that your comic was my first comic book? I go, I, I thank you? Like, you know, you, you don't really know what to say, but it's, it's a huge honor because it's, it's that weird thing of you, creating stories can have such an impact on people. Um, I got a lovely letter from this kid who came by since he was eight years old at cons, and he wrote it to uh, my buddy Samir and I who run Mindwave, and he said, because of you guys, I'm going to school for animation because I want to try and tell stories like you but I like cartoons better, which was like, okay, a little backhand compliment. But anyway, <laughs> I was at a convention recently. Uh, one of the superhero properties I've done a lot of work with is uh, Young Justice, which is only about a dozen years old. It doesn't feel like an old project to me. It feels like a recent history sort of thing. That's older than that. 
it wasn't for the animated series, though. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the animated like, oh, series incarnation, not the original Peter David comics. Um, but the uh, the uh, it's, it's the animated version that's relevant to the story because it, it, this woman came up to my table with a young, maybe five or six year old girl with her, and and they were looking at the Young Justice stuff I had, and the mother said, "Oh, I I loved this so much when I was a kid." <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And I, I felt the liver spots growing on my hands and arms and gray coming into my hair. It's yeah. like that scene from Indiana Jones. Exactly. <laughs> Soon you will be dust. Um, other questions out there before we start asking our, asking each other more questions? Oh, I'm he's back. back. He's back. Hello. I'll tell you, I have plenty of questions. All right. <laughs> Fire up. This one is primarily for Jody, but the other two kind of ties in. Oh, yeah. Jody, uh, two of the, the spin-off, or not really spin-off characters, but Doctor Who characters that you've done comics for were Missy and the Fugitive Doctor. I was wondering how those came into being and how much of a joy was it for you to write those two different characters? And then for Chris and for Dave, along the same lines, is there a particular Doctor Who character, not necessarily a doctor, but a character from the Doctor Who universe that you would love to do a comic book of, like a four-issue miniseries? Hell yeah. <laughs> um, Missy was actually a character. Uh, so the very first stories I wrote for Doctor Who were backups in Road to 13. So I did a story for 10, a story for 11, and a story for 12. And Missy was in the story of 12, and it was just like four pages, and I was very much like I love writing this character. I've always loved writing villains. I don't know if that's a statement on me personally, but uh, it was a blast and I kept pushing to see if we could bring Missy back in comics. And I kept getting no and no and no. And then finally the anniversary for the master's first appearance was coming up and they did want to do something for the master there. So then they, knowing that I really wanted to write Missy, they said, why don't we do a team up of Missy and the Delgado Master. So it's the most recent master and the first one. And that uh, ended up being a blast. And because it was a team up, I wanted to tie into Missy pretending to be the doctor like she did very briefly. So it was Missy pretending to be the doctor teaming up with her younger self and uh, treating him like a spoiled little child, which was way too much fun. Um, and as for the fugitive doctor, um, that was the story that I pitched that I thought for sure I was gonna get a no on uh, in terms of the early crimes of the Time Lords. They let me uh, do some really brutal, terrible things in that story because it had to be pretty bad for the fugitive doctor to become a fugitive in my view because you know she was obviously sort of a dedicated soldier for such a long time. Like whatever she saw that made her turn and run had to be just nightmarish. Uh, and they let us do some really cool stuff with that, so. But I, I have kind of a strange one, but it, it would be Wilf. I, I would love to write like young, young Wilf up to when Donna's mom was born. I think it would be really, really kind of fun to like kind of play up. Because he played a soldier, I think in one of the movies. Who gets well, he was a police officer yeah. in the second of the Peter Christian film. Yeah, so kind of connect the dots. I think would be really fun. I, no, you mentioned that. Like, no, I have a, I, like I have a pitch right right off the top of my head. <laughs> the the doctor meets a young wolf during his soldier days, but can't reveal himself as the doctor because it would alter the world's oh, timeline. Oh, you know, okay. There's so there's so many avenues. Um, I 
Uh, well, you mentioned the Roger Delgado Master when I was doing my first Doctor Who comic, the, the third Doctor miniseries I did with Paul Cornell. Um, I got to draw so much cool stuff in that series, but the thing that I'll just always made me like geek out as I was putting the brush lines down of like, I can't believe what I'm drawing, was literally inking the Roger Delgado's beard and those little white stripes, stripes he had at the corners. Um, as far as like, things I would want to do uh, that I haven't, um, I still would love to do the, the book that uh, Tony Lee and I were all but set up to do at Titan and then it fell apart for reasons I never quite heard the reason behind. Um, when it was, it was an anniversary year for the Centaurans and the, and Unit, Potato Man. And the pitch was, um, a sequel to the, uh, Third Doctor episode, Inferno, where you find out that that world wasn't entirely destroyed, a lot of damage was done, but it wasn't destroyed. The Brigade leader survived. Um, the Centaurans invade that Earth, and the unit is not in a place to stop them, there's no doctor, and they take over, and then they gain the access to the technology to access our reality. And you, it, it becomes a unit Torchwood crossover. You have a unit and Torchwood would each dealing with doppelgangers from the other, other universe including uh, Kate Stewart having to deal with the doppelganger of her dead father. Whoosh. And it involved the Centaurans, and I got as far as I did promo art for it, and it was Jack with a BFG flanked by Osgoods. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I still want to do that book. Someday. That's so cool. Someday. <sighs> um, well, we'll wait for other questions to emerge. Uh, what else do you guys want to talk about? I've asked a bunch of questions. I don't know, now I'm trying to think. Now you're trying to think. Um, what, uh, here you go. So this is something, obviously, all, all three of us had very different paths in the comic industry and such. But uh, what has been something that you, what has been the thing that you've enjoyed most? And what was the thing that you saw as the biggest challenge? <coughs> different questions. Uh, I see two for that's a fact. It's it's very fun. whether it's Doctor Who or or my experience with the Injustice. It's great to have an ongoing association with something that you get engagement with a fandom. Um, that's uh, I mean because individual stories are fun to draw and work on, but like as an ongoing thing, having that element of of an audience because you know if you're if you're an actor or a singer or something like that. You perform in front of an audience, you get that immediate feedback. Working in comics as a writer or an artist, you, you're off in solitude in the corner of your room. You're, you're creating art for an audience, but you're not there when the audience experiences it. So whether it's online or at conventions, having that feedback from people that know your work and follow it, and that ha happens more when it's connected with a specific property or a franchise, whether it's creator own or some existing property you've been lucky enough to contribute to, um, that just adds an extra layer of enjoyment to it for me. Right now. Jody? Um, I think for me this actually ties into something that Chris said earlier, but because I work on so many licensed books, 
and licensed comics are sort of an easy entry point for anyone to, who hasn't really read comics before to start reading comics. I've had so many people tell me, like, this Doctor Who comic or the Stranger Thing comic or so on was the first comic they ever read. And just feeling like I'm helping give people a easy way into a medium that I love so much and that has been such a big part of my life, like, you know, since I was a kid, that, that really does mean a lot. And I always try to, you know, have recommendations for, you know, not just my own stuff, but it's like, oh, if you really like this story, you should go read Saga, or something, which I think I just say to everyone, honestly, because, um, but yeah, just feeling like I'm helping people discover comics, I guess, by giving them a story that they already know who the characters are and what the world looks like, so then they can sort of focus on learning to read a new medium, I guess. Right on. That's cool. Biggest challenge. Biggest challenge. Oh, boy. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, like, the thing that's always hard... Uh, I find that there's things I find harder about more of the lifestyle of doing this career than the actual creative task of doing it. I mean, I know how to draw a comics page. It's, it's the whole thing of... Um, you know, you, you, you get a job and you do a job that runs for a certain amount of time, it reaches a natural conclusion, and you're out of work and looking for work again, and that cycle produces a lot of anxiety and self-doubt, and you, you find, you know, you, there, there's things that, that you deal with that just are blows to your ego and your sense of you valuing your own work, and, and you know, that kind of thing is really hard. I find that harder than any part of actually doing the job. Um, I, I was going to add to that. Like that's that's one of my things. That I've, wor- I've gotten a chance to work for every almost every major comic company, and you'll never see my name in any of them because most of my work is doing fill-in work or doing you know back behind the scenes stuff. And it's one of those funny things that people are just you know they're like, well, what have you done? You've been doing comics, you know, f- you know, 15, 16, 17 years, and it's like. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff. It's just well, I mean, it didn't get in. The levels on which you know you, you're not your stuff, minor, your experiences in mine are so different. You've done you've worn so many different hats, and I have I have I've done some amateur writing, but I've never had um, I, you know since I've since I've been like a pro, I haven't had anything I've written published. I just haven't put the time in. It's hard enough finding. Uh, art gigs, let alone branching out into writing gigs. Um, I've penciled stuff that other people have inked. I've penciled and inked my own stuff. I've never inked a page of someone else's pencils in my whole career. Never came up. You wanna? It's terrifying. <laughs> it's but, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure we could get people up here that had, had similar kind of career paths or experiences in comics, but I think I think there is a lot of, you know, everyone's got such a unique experience with it. We're kind of, yeah, three very yeah. removed we're, corners yeah. of a triangle here. We're, we're, we're a unique unique trio up here, or around here. I think it's very, I'm looking down at the monitor and I know that you're also on the monitor over there, so I'm like, we're, we're a triangle. I'm everywhere. Here, yeah. <laughs> it's happening again. Um, She's so good at writing those villains, now I know why. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think 
I think what you're saying, it's like going into freelance work, it's, you always hear, it's like, it's feast or famine, and people don't really say, it's usually both of those at the same time. Yeah. It's like, you're sort of, you have, you're, you know, you might have deadlines piling up, but you also don't know what you're going to be working on in three months. You might have, like, no income coming in. So it's, it's yeah, it's sort of just schedule chaos, I think, a lot of the time. And for me, last year, I had COVID in May for, like, all of May. And uh, when you work in monthly comics and you miss, like, a full month of work, I spent pretty much the rest of the year just catching up. Oh. It was just, it's just like dominoes. It's like one thing's late, so, but then you got to finish it up with them. The next thing's late. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. That's why I do self-publish. <laughs> we have another question from a familiar voice. <laughs> Hello once again. Uh, one of the things that all three of you have in common, uh, Dave, I'm not super familiar with your work, but you mentioned okay. that you work licensing stuff with WWE prop or yeah, I, I, stuff. I design gear and merch, so. Hey, um, but, but all of that has, in creating comics, licensed comics, have, you have to deal with like the BBC or the, the owners of the properties to get the yay or nay on things. And I was wondering how challenging or how easy is it to work with like the BBC to get final approval on a storyline for a Doctor Who comic, like a 13th Doctor comic. Um, or like with the WWE approving packaging for uh, or merchandise and uh, something along those lines. I, I will say that the nice thing about being on the writing side and I think often the art side too is the editor is the one who is talking to the licensor. So everything goes to the editor and the editor, if there's like weird stuff going on, the editor will do their best to like shield you from it and make sure it isn't impacting your work. Um, and I think the hardest thing for us is there were a couple times when like TV scripts had come in after we had started a comic and we had to go back and change stuff because it ended up being too similar to an upcoming episode that we didn't actually know that was going to be the case when it started. So yeah, usually it's just timing stuff like that that ends up being the trickiest. Yeah, I think the creative team usually aren't the ones having to deal with that. You learn fairly quickly early on that that's part of the game is you're going to get these arbitrary limitations or decisions or requests for changes handed down from on high. The biggest thing that's frustrating about them is you almost never get any reasoning behind it. There's no asking of why. It's just, it's this, do it. Like, oh, okay. And I mean, like the stuff that I do, I, so thankfully within the wrestling industry, I work with a lot of individuals more so, working with independent, independent contractors. Um, but one of my jobs is I work with Boss Fight Studios on their Legends of Lucha Libre line. So I work with very, very specific limitations of gear, tattoos, everything like that. Like having to draw someone's, like for instance, uh, one coming up is an action figure of the wrestler Vampiro. He has a tattoo that goes from his pec all the way over to his back and all the way down his arm. And I had to figure out how to draw that flat for uh, what's called a tampo hit. Um, also, it had to then go back and get approved because he had to go Yep. So it, it was a very strange thing because again, I I can only imagine with larger larger properties and stuff like that, uh, it's that much more intimidating. But it's a very strange thing to draw something that is on a person and then have to go, is this right? And yeah. Yeah. I mean, with my experience, whether it be um, Doctor Who or some of the superhero stuff, it mostly comes in the form of characters you can't use or proposed storylines that get vetoed often because, oh, that's similar to something else that we're doing that no one knows about yet. Um, 
but there's also been things like um, we were doing a storyline in the Young Justice comic that featured a couple of the milestone characters, Icon and Rocket, and in the middle of a story arc, uh, there was some issue. It ended up getting resolved, and it was all fine. But there was an issue briefly where uh, there was something up between um, DC and the milestone characters which they don't own outright, they just license the use of, that, like you said, it got resolved, but we were basically told, uh, for the time being, until you're otherwise, you can't use them anymore. So they just vanished mid-story. They, they were called the way out of mission. Because there's, there was no way to resolve their involvement without at least referencing them, and we couldn't do even that. So they just sort of, where did they go? Yeah. You know. They return to their home planet and never to be seen again. Yeah, they're off with Poochie. I, I will. I will say, uh, in terms of Doctor Who, I think my funniest note along uh, those lines, in terms of like approvals, was uh, in the Fugitive Doctor story. There's a character who gets stabbed in the back and falls off a cliff. You know, sort of standard story stuff. And the note that came back was, "We don't want there to be any blood because that's you know too much." Can the knife be electric instead? So I was like, so instead of just getting stabbed and falling off, off a cliff, you want them to get stabbed and electrocuted and fall off a cliff, and that's less violent. But no blood. Okay. But it might cauterize no the blood, wound preventing the knife, bleeding. Yeah, they wanted the wound to be cauterized, but I was just like, <laughs> like it's one of those instances where it's like, I, it's like I know you think you're making this better, but it, to me it feels like it's a little worse actually. But, like, I mean, I was fine with it. I, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's just sort of like a funny perspective thing, I guess. It's, it's the lightsaber logic. When, no when, blood. Yeah. When we were doing Injustice, the comic, uh, the intent was for it to match the tone of the TV show, which was fairly sophisticated and, and not aimed at young kids. It was done in a way that's relatively friendly for kids, but like, it really wasn't aimed at a, a kid audience. But DC insisted that since it was based on an animated property, the kid, the book be branded an all-ages book, and then was therefore subject to the limitations of what they would allow in one of their all-ages books. So, like, Greg wrote a two-parter that was retelling the origin story of Captain Adam, which involves his, his civilian, in his civilian identity, he's framed for someone's murder, and that revolved around someone finding a body of someone who had been stabbed and the knife is sticking out of their Was chest. Was it electric? And, and the, the plot had been approved, the script was approved, I penciled it, I turned into pencils, and they said, you can't show a knife sticking out of somebody's chest. It was the central plot point of the entire story. So we had to figure out how to imply finding a knife sticking out of somebody's chest without showing the knife sticking out of somebody's chest. Just have them standing around going, oh no, a knife sticking out of that guy's chest. A knife! Yeah. We we slumped in a chair from the back and had them refer to the knife with dialogue. But it was just just annoying. It's like, why are we having to play by these rules when no one working on this wants to be that kind of a book? So the chair pushed the knife for, never mind, never mind. I mean, I will say that's one kids, of the, I, I feel like kids know knives exist. I'm just, yeah. you know. That, that's one of those weird things too about, I'm, I'm pretty well known as a kid-friendly all ages creator, but I had a background in horror makeup and uh, doing stuff. I, I was a, a walker artist on The Walking Dead obstacle course. 
And so I was here, actually in this hotel for Crypticon, and someone was like, what the heck are you doing here? I'm just like, oh, I do scary stuff too. You just don't see that stuff. So, I don't know. La labels are a strange thing in this industry. Well, I'm seeing, I'm seeing two questions. The gentleman at the microphone is first. There we go. Uh, <clears throat> so, you each have your own style and way of doing things. In a universe where the three of you were brought together to collaborate on uh, a comic, like how, comics would, on. how would you meld your different styles to work together? How, how would you go about doing that? We would do what Jody tells us. <laughs> yup! <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm a, and I'll, I would do what the editor told me. So <laughs> really, it would, uh, it would sort of come down to what the project was. I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, especially on licensed stuff, it really all revolves around what the needs of the project are. So that sort of has to be the building blocks. It's kind of hard as a hypothetical to say like, oh, we do this because the project might need us all to do that. And each, each one's, like every single project is so unique in yeah. that aspect too that it, it definitely, it, it changes everything every time. Probably the defining thing of my whole career is that my style has been all over the place depending on the property I've been working on, whether it's something based on photoreal character likenesses like Doctor Who, animated TV properties, superhero stuff, which, you know, early in my career I would have thought would have been to my advantage. Oh, yeah, hire Chris Jones, he can do anything. But really, I feel like sometimes it's been a detriment because people don't know what to, what style to associate with my name. It's it's a weird industry, really. It really is weird and wonderful. You, you but, but, was, but, did that answer your question? We should all work together. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm done. <laughs> Game on. All right. Oh, sorry. What was your question? I was just going to jokingly ask if you could show the tip of the knife sticking out the back of the chair. Ooh, like right now. <laughs> sorry, Chris. Oh, could you could you share the question because I can't hear. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, she was asked in in the anecdote I was telling about not being able to show the the person in the chair with the knife stuck in their chest. If we could show the the point, the tip of the knife coming through the back of the chair, I don't think that would have helped what their issue was with us at all. No, that'd be a really long knife. It would be a really <laughs> sword. I don't know. We do have another question at the microphone. Though. Go ahead, sir. Hi. Um, I just have a general question. How hard is it for like a mini major like Image or Dark Horse to get like original IP published? Do you need like a a named writer or a named artist uh, for them to even look at your original IP? How hard is it for a publisher to 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 get them to look at an original IP? Is yes. That, yes. That's yeah. not like a. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of those, those strange things, as, as someone who's more on the indie side of things, of getting it in front of the right people is much harder than you think because that is kind of a, a set of people that ebbs and flows. So there's always new editors, there's always new, you know, new people coming to every branch of that. Um, they do usually post up on their social medias and stuff if they do have like open submissions. A lot of the time it's, they won't take what are called unsolicited submissions. So you'd have to have a literary agent of some sort to actually come to them with the, the property or you know the IP, um, which I'll be honest, it's a pain, but uh, <laughs> I've more recently kind of come to that side of things. Um, 
And yeah, it's, it's, it's a very a strange thing because those open submissions don't come very often anymore just because when they open them up, it's like, here's 10,000 scripts. You know, it's like everybody's submitting everything at once. And you, you don't ever really develop a relationship with a publisher. You develop a relationship with individual people you know who work for a given publisher. So when there is changeover that happens in their, their editorial staff, it could sometimes completely destroy whatever connection you've had with a given publisher or create opportunities if they hire the right person. True. I've, I've had seven projects that just got the door slammed in their face after developing script, you know, even some pages, and there was a change up in the lineup, and that was that. So it's, it, I don't want to say it's cutthroat, but it is very much, it, I, I don't know how to put it in the positive way of, it's, it's, it's a pain in the butt, because that stuff can happen. It is a very hard industry to get anything done in, and you will hear comics creators talk so cynically about working in comics, because really, it is a messed up industry, it's really hard, but you know, we obviously love doing what we love, doing what we do so much, that in spite of all that, we're still trying to make comics. It's because we're it's, it's, it's one of those things that, it's so hard, and the rewards are so less than they should be, that really, if you have the skills to make it in comics and to be happy doing anything else, you should really go do something else, you'd be better off. I, but if, I, if you can't possibly be talked out of doing comics, then you probably have the tenacity to eventually get somewhere. The other thing I'll say is also look into self-publishing, because yeah. that's something that, like, again, I, I, I'm not gonna lie, there have been many times where I've kind of sat there and gone, wow, like this is really frustrating. And, uh, but when I started up Mindwave years ago, it was something of, oh, I want to tell my own stories, this will be fun. And in the meantime, it's become something of, well, if I don't have contract work, I can work on my own stuff and be producing my own books and, and whatnot. So it, it almost serves as a safety net uh, within comics, which is weird to say. But um, yeah, so look into self-publishing. And if you have questions too about self-publishing, Feel free to reach out. Um, all my contact information on the site and such, too. Another question with the microphone? Hello. Hi. So back in the olden days, there were the blue boards, and then you had someone pencil the blue boards, and then you had someone ink the blue boards, and somebody else colored them, and then they went to the publisher and all of the press stuff and all the press work and everything that was that was... I actually have a background in that too. Um, but how has the digital age changed that process? Uh, for anyone who couldn't hear, the question was about how the, the physical step-by-step -step process of producing comics and getting it turned into the publisher has been changed by technology. Uh, and, and just speaking for myself, I started at a point where I would still get scripts and reference material sent in like a FedEx package by the publisher, and I would have to send off again by, by probably usually FedEx original pages when they were complete, and then that eventually changed to, you know, they would send you stuff by email, and you would just send a digital file of your page, and, and you know, now I don't even have the step where I would draw on the paper and scan it to make a digital file out of it anymore. 
I, I do the work digitally, so I mean, it's, it, it's gotten very streamlined and very digital for me. And I, I came in, uh, my first pro work, I was a sophomore in college, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I got lucky enough to ink some pages um, for a DC book, and I was sent pages that I was supposed to scan in, print blue line, <laughs> ink, and send back. I didn't know that. Um, I, I was 19 years old, and I got, I, I, I got them. They were very grayscale, very light gray, and I went, okay! And I inked right on the computer paper, scanned them in, cleaned them up a little bit, and then I was to send the digital file in. Um, the funny thing about that was, they, on their end, they got the digital file. They never saw the originals and my screw-up. It wasn't until years later, my editor, the guy who gave me the break for the pages, was flipping through and I had one of those pages in and you can tell it looks craggly because the paper has just contracted into this wrinkly mess. And he goes, what is this? And I go, it's one of the pages you gave me. And he goes, why is it like that? I'm like, oh, because I'm an idiot. Um, and funny enough, he asked if he could have one. He has it framed in his office now. I still, I still hope someday there's a little engraved plaque that just says. Are, are we close to time? Do we have time for one more oh, question, or are we done? Three, three minutes left. Three, three. Okay. Uh, do we? Uh, any last question, or shall we just say our goodbyes? Any last questions in the room? I'm not seeing any hands going up. Right oh, now. Got, oh, one. We got. All right, make it short and quick. That's it. Okay, this one's for Jody. What's the temperature like where you're at? Oh. Uh, it's actually pretty, I mean, it's LA, but it's pretty chilly. It's been like, you know, it's been getting down to like, we had a freeze warning last week, actually. Or no, the, earlier this week. What, we're, yeah. at negative, we're at negative 20. See, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not that cold. It's See, LA cold, which is like, means it's like, Upper 50s, low 60s. I've been explaining LA cold to people here all weekend, Jody. They're giving me so much grief. So don't don't wrap me out now on how much nicer it is there. I'll throw it out there. Going to school. So my wife went to school a year before me. She's a year older. She went down to Savannah. She's like, it's so cold down here. It's 60 degrees. And I'm like, you're from Minnesota. It's 60 degrees. You should be in shorts and a t-shirt. Until I went down there and realized it's like 80% humidity with 60 degrees, which sucks. So, I, yeah, I understand the, the, the really cool idea. And I think that summarizes comics. <laughs> so thank you all. Oh, thank you all for coming. Wait, 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 Let's, let's uh, tell the people where they can find all of us, because um, yeah, we're, we're on the internets. Um, so, very true. Yeah, so uh, Jody, go, go for it. Uh, let's see, mo most places I'm Jody Hauser, except on Twitter, I'm Jody underscore Hauser, and Instagram, I'm the Jody Hauser, because people took my name earlier. Me too. But yeah, I have, a, I have a newsletter, I have a coffee shop where you can buy comics that are signed, so yeah, just find me online. I'm not as good about posting regularly on my own website as I should be, but if you do go to ChristopherJonesArt.com, that has links to all my social media where I post slightly more often, uh, and you can you can reach me through that. So so that's that's my contact info. This chair reclined entirely too far back. Um, you can find me on X at Dave Wheeler. You can find me on Instagram at the Dave Wheeler. You can find me at Patreon Patreon.com/slash Dave Wonder. You can find me on YouTube YouTube.com/slash Dave Wonder. I have to say this three times a week, so I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully uh, you can find us all right back here at Console Room sooner than later. So thank you everybody for coming. Thank you Jody for being here. Thank you Chris for being awesome, and uh, have a lovely day. Please stay warm.
Good to see you, Jenny. See you soon. Many thanks to all the guests I had on this episode, whether it be one-on-one interviews or panels from uh, conventions. Thanks to Jason Quinn, thanks to Mike Collins, and thanks to the panel guests Christopher Jones, Dave Wheeler, and Jody Hauser for letting me present their panel from Console Room 2024. Thank you all out there for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate the fact that you uh, enjoy Doctor Who comics. It's fans like you and me and uh, those of us who enjoy comic books and enjoy Doctor Who that keep Doctor Who comics going. You know, if it wasn't for us, Doctor Who magazine would have gotten rid of the comic strip a long time ago. Titan Comics wouldn't be releasing new upcoming 15th Doctor comics. So... Thank you for keeping Dr. Ukamis going. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for a great 10 years. And I have no plans on stopping. So until next time, this is Jeremy Bement. See you on the next episode. Dr. Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Dr. Who Comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Dr. Who Comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Dr. Who Panel the Panel, on Twitter at Dr. Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DrWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Dr. Who Panel the Panel. Thank you.